Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 44 of The Three Musketeers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 44 The Utility of Stovepipes It was evident that without suspecting it, and actuated solely by their chivalrous and adventurous character, our three friends had just rendered a service to someone the cardinal honoured with his special protection. Now, who was that someone? That was the question the three musketeers put to one another. Then, seeing that none of their replies could throw any light on the subject, Porthos called the host and asked for dice. Porthos and Aramis placed themselves at the table and began to play. Athos walked about in a contemplative mood. While thinking and walking, Athos passed and repassed before the pipe of the stove, broken in halves, the other extremity passing into the chamber above and every time he passed and repassed he heard a murmur of words, which at length fixed his attention. Athos went close to it, and distinguished some words that appeared to merit so great an interest that he made a sign to his friends to be silent, remaining himself bent with his ear directed to the opening of the lower orifice. "'Listen, milady,' said the cardinal, "'the affair is important. Sit down, and let us talk it over.' Milady, murmured Athos. "'I listen to your eminence with greatest attention,' replied a female voice which made the musketeer start. "'A small vessel with an English crew, whose captain is on my side, awaits you at the mouth of Charente, at Fort Le Pointe. He will set sail to-morrow morning.' "'I must go thither to-night?' "'Instantly. That is to say, when you have received my instructions—' Two men, whom you will find at the door on going out, will serve you as escort. You will allow me to leave first. Then, after half an hour, you can go away in your turn. Yes, Monseigneur. Now, let us return to the mission with which you wish to charge me. And as I desire to continue to merit the confidence of your eminence, deign to unfold it to me in terms clear and precise, that I may not commit an error." There was an instant of profound silence between the two interlocutors. It was evident that the cardinal was weighing beforehand the terms in which he was about to speak, and that Milady was collecting all her intellectual faculties to comprehend the things he was about to say, and to engrave them in her memory when they should be spoken. Athos took advantage of this moment to tell his two companions to fasten the door inside, and to make them a sign to come and listen with him. The two musketeers, who loved their ease, brought a chair for each of themselves and one for Athos. All three then sat down with their heads together and their ears on the alert. "'You will go to London,' continued the cardinal. "'Arrived in London, you will seek Buckingham.' 
"'I must beg your eminence to observe,' said Milady, "'that since the affair of the diamond studs, about which the duke always suspected me, his grace distrusts me.' "'Well, this time,' said the cardinal, "'it is not necessary to steal his confidence, but to present yourself frankly and loyally as a negotiator.' "'Frankly and loyally?' repeated milady with an unspeakable expression of duplicity yes frankly and loyally replied the cardinal in the same tone all this negotiation must be carried on openly i will follow your eminence's instructions to the letter i only wait till you give them you will go to buckingham in my behalf and you will tell him i am acquainted with all the preparations he has made but that they give me no uneasiness, since at the first step he takes I will ruin the Queen. Will he believe that your eminence is in a position to accomplish the threat thus made? Yes, for I have the proofs. I must be able to present these proofs for his appreciation. Without doubt. And you will tell him, I will publish the report of Bois-Robert and the Marquis de Beautreux, upon the interview which the duke had at the residence of madame the constable with the queen on the evening madame the constable gave a masquerade you will tell him in order that he may not doubt that he came there in the costume of the great mogul which the chevalier de guise was to have worn and that he purchased this exchange for the sum of three thousand pistoles well monseigneur all the details of his coming into and going out of the palace on the night when he introduced himself in the character of an italian fortune-teller ah you will tell him that he may not doubt the correctness of my information that he had under his cloak a large white robe dotted with black tears death's heads and crossbones for in case of a surprise he was to pass for the phantom of the white lady who as all the world knows appears at the louvre every time any great event is impending is that all monseigneur tell him also that i am acquainted with all the details of the adventure at amiens that i will have a little romance made of it wittily turned with a plan of the garden and portraits of the principal actors in that nocturnal romance i will tell him that tell him further that i hold montague in my power that Montague is in the Bastille, that no letters were found upon him, it is true, but that torture may make him tell much of what he knows, and even what he does not know. Exactly. Then add that his grace has, in the precipitation with which he quit the Isle of Re, forgotten and left behind in his lodging a certain letter from Madame de Chevreuse, which singularly compromises the Queen— inasmuch as it proves not only that her majesty can love the enemies of the king but that she can conspire with the enemies of france you recollect perfectly all i have told you do you not your eminence will judge the ball of madame the constable the night at the louvre the evening at amiens the arrest of montague the letter of madame de chevreuse that's it said the cardinal that's it you have an excellent memory, milady. But, 
resumed she to whom the cardinal addressed this flattering compliment if in spite of all these reasons the duke does not give way and continues to menace france the duke is in love to madness or rather to folly replied richelieu with great bitterness like the ancient paladins he has only undertaken this war to obtain a look from his lady-love if he becomes certain that this war will cost the honour and perhaps the liberty of the lady of his thoughts as he says i will answer for it he will look twice and yet said milady with a persistence that proved she wished to see clearly to the end of the mission with which she was about to be charged if he persists if he persists said the cardinal that is not probable it is possible said milady if he persists his eminence made a pause and resumed if he persists well then i shall hope for one of those events which change the destinies of states if your eminence would quote to me some one of these events in history said milady perhaps i should partake of your confidence as to the future well here for example said richelieu when in sixteen ten for a cause similar to that which moves the duke king henry the fourth of glorious memory was about at the same time to invade flanders and italy in order to attack austria on both sides well did there not happen an event which saved austria why should not the king of france have the same chance as the emperor your eminence means i presume the knife-stab in the rue de la ferronnerie precisely said the cardinal does not your eminence fear that the punishment inflicted upon raveillac may deter any one who might entertain the idea of imitating him there will be in all times and in all countries particularly if religious divisions exist in those countries fanatics who ask nothing better than to become martyrs ay and observe it just occurs to me that the puritans are furious against buckingham and their preachers designate him as the antichrist well said milady well continued the cardinal in an indifferent tone the only thing to be sought for at this moment is some woman handsome young and clever who has cause of quarrel with the duke the duke has had many affairs of gallantry and if he has fostered his amours by promise of eternal constancy he must likewise have sown the seeds of hatred by his eternal infidelities no doubt said milady coolly such a woman may be found well such a woman who would place the knife of jacques clement or of ravillac in the hands of a fanatic would save france yes but she would then be the accomplice of an assassination were the accomplices of ravaillac or of jacques clement ever known no for perhaps they were too high placed for any one to dare look for them where they were the palace of justice would not be burned down for everybody monseigneur you think then that the fire at the palace of justice was not caused by chance asked richelieu in the tone with which he would have put a question of no importance i monseigneur replied milady i think nothing 
I quote a fact, that is all. Only I say that if I were named Madame de Montpensier, or the Queen Marie de Medici, I should use less precautions than I take, being simply called Milady Cleric. That is just, said Richelieu. What do you require, then? I require an order which would ratify beforehand all that I should think proper to do for the greatest good of France. But in the first place, this woman I have described must be found who is desirous of avenging herself upon the Duke. She is found, said Milady. Then the miserable fanatic must be found who will serve as an instrument of God's justice. He will be found. Well, said the Cardinal, then it will be time to claim the order which you just now required. Your eminence is right, replied Milady, and I have been wrong in seeing in the mission with which you honour me anything but that which it really is, that is, to announce to his grace, on the part of your eminence, that you are acquainted with the different disguises by means of which he succeeded in approaching the queen during the fete given by Madame the Constable, that you have proofs of the interview granted at the Louvre by the Queen to a certain Italian astrologer, who was no other than the Duke of Buckingham, that you have ordered a little romance of a satirical nature to be written upon the adventures of Amiens, with a plan of the gardens in which those adventures took place, and portraits of the actors who figured in them, that Montague is in the Bastille, and that the torture may make him say things he remembers, and even things he has forgotten, that you possess a certain letter from Madame de Chevreuse, found in his grace's lodging, which singularly compromises not only her who wrote it, but her in whose name it was written. Then, if he persists, notwithstanding all this, as that is, as I have said, the limit of my mission, I shall have nothing to do but to pray God to work a miracle for the salvation of France. That is it, is it not, Monseigneur, and I shall have nothing else to do? That is it, replied the Cardinal, dryly. And now, said Milady, without appearing to remark the change of the Duke's tone toward her, now that I have received the instructions of your eminence, as concerns your enemies, Monseigneur will permit me to say a few words to him? of mine? "'Have you enemies, then?' asked Richelieu. "'Yes, Monseigneur, enemies against whom you owe all your support, for I made them by serving your eminence.' "'Who are they?' replied the Duke. "'In the first place there is a little intrigante named Bonacieux. "'She is in the prison of Nantes.' "'That is to say, she was there,' replied Milady but the queen has obtained an order from the king, by means of which she has been conveyed to a convent. "'To a convent?' said the duke. "'Yes, to a convent.' "'And to which?' "'I don't know. The secret has been well kept.' "'But I will know.' "'And your eminence will tell me in what convent that woman is?' "'I can see nothing inconvenient in that,' said the cardinal. "'Well,' Now I have an enemy much more to be dreaded by me than this little Madame Bonacieux. Who is that? Her lover. What is his name? Oh, your eminence knows him well, cried Milady, carried away by her anger. 
he is the evil genius of both of us it is he who in an encounter with your eminence's guards decided the victory in favour of the king's musketeers it is he who gave three desperate wounds to de ward your emissary and who caused the affair of the diamond studs to fail it is he who knowing it was i who had madame bonacieux carried off has sworn my death ah ah said the cardinal i know of whom you speak i mean that miserable d'artagnan he is a bold fellow said the cardinal and it is exactly because he is a bold fellow that he is the more to be feared i must have said the duke a proof of his connection with buckingham a proof cried milady i will have ten well then it becomes the simplest thing in the world get me that proof and i will send him to the bastille so far good monseigneur but afterwards when once in the bastille there is no afterward said the cardinal in a low voice ah pardieu continued he if it were as easy for me to get rid of my enemy as it is easy to get rid of yours and if it were against such people you require impunity monseigneur replied milady a fair exchange life for life man for man give me one i will give you the other i don't know what you mean nor do i even desire to know what you mean replied the cardinal but i wish to please you and see nothing out of the way in giving you what you demand with respect to so infamous a creature the more so as you tell me this d'artagnan is a libertine a duelist and a traitor an infamous scoundrel monseigneur a scoundrel give me paper a quill and some ink then said the cardinal here they are monseigneur there was a moment of silence which proved that the cardinal was employed in seeking the terms in which he should write the note or else in writing it athos who had not lost a word of the conversation took his two companions by the hand and led them to the other end of the room well said porthos what do you want and why do you not let us listen to the end of the conversation hush said athos speaking in a low voice we have heard all it was necessary we should hear besides i don't prevent you from listening but i must be gone you must be gone said porthos and if the cardinal asks for you what answer can we make you will not wait till he asks you will speak first and tell him that i am gone on the lookout because certain expressions of our host has given me reason to think the road is not safe i will say two words about it to the cardinal's esquire likewise the rest concerns myself don't be uneasy about that be prudent athos said aramis be easy on that head replied athos you know i am cool enough porthos and aramis resumed their places by the stove-pipe as to athos he went out without any mystery took his horse which was tied with those of his friends to the fastenings of the shutters in four words convinced the attendant of the necessity of a vanguard for their return carefully examining the priming of his pistols drew his sword and took like a forlorn hope the road to the camp end of chapter chapter 45 of the three musketeers this is a librivox recording
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 45 A Conjugal Scene As Athos had foreseen, it was not long before the cardinal came down. He opened the door of the room in which the musketeers were, and found Porthos playing an earnest game of dice with Aramis. He cast a rapid glance around the room, and perceived that one of his men was missing. "'What has become of Monseigneur Athos?' asked he. "'Monseigneur,' replied Porthos, "'he has gone on a scout, on account of some words of our host, which made him believe the road was not safe.' "'And you, what have you done, Monsieur Porthos?' "'I have won four pistoles of Aramis.' "'Well, now, will you return with me?' "'We are at your eminence's orders.' "'To horse, then, gentlemen, for it is getting late.' The attendant was at the door, holding the cardinal's horse by the bridle. At a short distance a group of two men and three horses appeared in the shade. These were the two men who were to conduct Milady to Fort La Pointe, and superintend her embarkation. The attendant confirmed to the cardinal what the two musketeers had already said with respect to Athos. The cardinal made an approving gesture, and retraced his route with the same precautions he had used in coming. Let us leave him to follow the road to the camp protected by his esquire and the two musketeers, and return to Athos. For a hundred paces he maintained the speed at which he started, but when out of sight he turned his horse to the right, made a circuit, and came back within twenty paces of a high hedge to watch the passage of the little troop. Having recognized the laced hats of his companions and the golden fringe of the cardinal's cloak, he waited till the horsemen had turned the angle of the road, and, having lost sight of them, he returned at a gallop to the inn, which was open to him without hesitation. The host recognized him. "'My officer,' said Athos, "'has forgotten to give a piece of very important information to the lady, and has sent me back to repair his forgetfulness.' "'Go up,' said the host. "'She is still in her chamber.' Athos availed himself of the permission ascended the stairs with his lightest step, gained the landing, and through the open door perceived Milady putting on her hat. He entered the chamber and closed the door behind him. At the noise he made in pushing the bolt, Milady turned round. Athos was standing before the door, enveloped in his cloak, with his hat pulled down over his eyes. On seeing this figure, mute and immovable as a statue, Milady was frightened. "'Who are you, and what do you want?' cried she. "'Hm!' murmured Athos. "'It is certainly she.' And letting fall his cloak, and raising his hat, he advanced toward Milady. "'Do you know me, madam?' said he. Milady made one step forward, and then drew back as if she had seen a serpent. "'So far well,' said Athos. "'I perceive you know me.' "'The Comte de la Fere,' murmured Milady, becoming exceedingly pale, and drawing back till the wall prevented her from going any further. "'Yes, Milady,' replied Athos, "'the Comte de la Fere, in person, who comes expressly from the other world to have the pleasure of paying you a visit.' 
Sit down, madame, and let us talk, as the cardinal said. Milady, under the influence of inexpressible terror, sat down without uttering a word. You certainly are a demon sent upon the earth, said Athos. Your power is great, I know, but you also know that with the help of God men have often conquered the most terrible demons. You have once before thrown yourself in my path. I thought I had crushed you, madame, but either I was deceived or hell has resuscitated you. Milady, at these words, which recalled frightful remembrances, hung down her head with a suppressed groan. "'Yes, hell has resuscitated you,' continued Athos. "'Hell has made you rich. Hell has given you another name. Hell has almost made you another face. But it has neither effaced the stains from your soul nor the brand from your body.' Milady arose as if moved by a powerful spring, and her eyes flashed lightning. Athos remained sitting. "'You believed me to be dead, did you not?' as I believed you to be, and the name of Athos as well concealed the Comte de la Fere as the name Milady Cleric concealed Anne de Broye. Was it not so you were called when your honoured brother married us? Our position is truly a strange one, continued Athos, laughing. We have only lived up to the present time because we believed each other dead." and because a remembrance is less oppressive than a living creature, though a remembrance is sometimes devouring. "'But,' said Milady, in a hollow, faint voice, "'what brings you back to me, and what do you want with me?' "'I wish to tell you that, though remaining invisible to your eyes, I have not lost sight of you.' "'You know what I have done?' I can relate to you, day by day, your actions from your entrance to the service of the cardinal to this evening." A smile of incredulity passed over the pale lips of Milady. "'Listen. It was you who cut off the two diamond studs from the shoulder of the Duke of Buckingham. It was you had the Madame Bonacieux carried off. It was you who, in love with de Ward and thinking to pass the night with him, opened the door to Monsieur d'Artagnan. It was you who, believing that de Wardes had deceived you, wished to have him killed by his rival. It was you who, when this rival had discovered your infamous secret, wished to have him killed in his turn by two assassins, which you sent in pursuit of him. It was you who, finding the balls had missed their mark, sent poisoned wine with a forged letter, to make your victim believe that the wine came from his friends. In short, it was you who have but now, in this chamber, seated in this chair I now fill, made an engagement with Cardinal Richelieu to cause the Duke of Buckingham to be assassinated, in exchange for the promise he has made you to allow you to assassinate D'Artagnan. Milady was livid. "'You must be Satan!' cried she. "'Perhaps.' said Athos. But at all events, listen well to this. Assassinate the Duke of Buckingham, or cause him to be assassinated. I care very little about that. I don't know him. Besides, he is an Englishman. But do not touch with the tip of your finger a single hair of D'Artagnan, who is a faithful friend whom I love and defend, or I swear to you.' 
by the head of my father, the crime which you shall have endeavoured to commit, or shall have committed, shall be the last. Monsieur d'Artagnan has cruelly insulted me, said Milady in a hollow tone. Monsieur d'Artagnan shall die. Indeed, is it possible to insult you, madame? said Athos, laughing. He has insulted you, and he shall die. He shall die, replied Milady. She first, and he afterward. Athos was seized with a kind of vertigo. The sight of this creature, who had nothing of the woman about her, recalled awful remembrances. He thought how one day, in a less dangerous situation than the one in which he was now placed, he had already endeavoured to sacrifice her to his honour. His desire for blood returned, burning his brain, and pervading his frame like a raging fever. He arose in his turn, reached his hand to his belt, drew forth a pistol, and cocked it. Milady, pale as a corpse, endeavoured to cry out, but her swollen tongue could utter no more than a hoarse sound which had nothing human in it, and resembled the rattle of a wild beast. Motionless against the dark tapestry, with her hair in disorder, she appeared like a horrid image of terror. Athos slowly raised his pistol, stretched out his arm so that the weapon almost touched Milady's forehead, and then, in a voice the more terrible for having the supreme calmness of a fixed resolution, Madame, said he, you will this instant deliver to me the paper the cardinal signed, or upon my soul I will blow your brains out. With another man, Milady might have perceived some doubt, but she knew Athos. Nevertheless, she remained motionless. You have one second to decide, said he. Milady saw by the contraction of his countenance that the trigger was about to be pulled. She reached her hand quickly to her bosom, drew out a paper, and held it toward Athos. Take it, said she, and be accursed. Athos took the paper, returned the pistol to his belt, approached the lamp to be assured that it was the paper, unfolded it, and read. December 3rd, 1627. It is by my order and for the good of the State that the bearer of this has done what he has done. Richelieu. And now, said Athos, resuming his cloak and putting on his hat, now that I have drawn your teeth, viper, bite if you can. And he left the chamber without once looking behind him. At the door he found the two men and the spare horse which they held. Gentlemen, said he, Monseigneur's order is, you know, to conduct that woman, without losing time, to Fort La Pointe, and never to leave her till she is on board. As these words agreed wholly with the order they had received, they bowed their heads in sign of assent. With regard to Athos, he leaped lightly into the saddle and set out at full gallop. Only, instead of following the road, he went across the fields, urging his horse to the utmost, and stopping occasionally to listen. In one of those halts he heard the steps of several horses on the road. He had no doubt it was the cardinal and his escort. He immediately made a new point in advance, rubbed his horse down with some heath and leaves of trees, and placed himself across the road about two hundred paces from the camp. "'Who goes there?' cried he, as soon as he perceived the horseman. 
"'That is our brave musketeer, I think,' said the cardinal. "'Yes, Monseigneur,' said Porthos, "'it is he.' "'Monsieur Athos,' said Richelieu, "'receive my thanks for the good guard you have kept. "'Gentlemen, we are arrived. "'Take the gate on the left. "'The watchword is King and Ray.' Saying these words, the cardinal saluted the three friends with an inclination of his head, and took the right hand, followed by his attendant, for that night he himself slept in the camp. "'Well,' said Porthos and Aramis together, as soon as the cardinal was out of hearing, "'well, he signed the paper she required.' "'I know it,' said Athos, coolly, "'since here it is.' And the three friends did not exchange another word till they reached their quarters, except to give the watchword to the sentinels. Only they sent Mousqueton to tell Planchet that his master was requested, the instant that he left the trenches, to come to the quarters of the musketeers. Milady, as Athos had foreseen, on finding the two men that awaited her, made no difficulty in following them. She had had for an instant an inclination to be reconducted to the cardinal, and relate everything to him, but a revelation on her part would bring about a revelation on the part of Athos. She might say that Athos had hanged her, but then Athos would tell that she was branded. She thought it was best to preserve silence, to discreetly set off to accomplish her difficult mission with her usual skill. And then, all things being accomplished to the satisfaction of the cardinal, to come to him and claim her vengeance. In consequence, after having travelled all night, at seven o'clock she was at the fort of the point, at eight o'clock she had embarked, and at nine the vessel, which with letters of mark from the cardinal was supposed to be sailing for Bayonne, raised anchor and steered its course toward England. End of chapter Chapter 46 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 46 The Bastion Saint-Gervais on arriving at the lodgings of his three friends, D'Artagnan found them assembled in the same chamber. Athos was meditating, Porthos was twisting his moustache, Aramis was saying his prayers in a charming little book of ours, bound in blue velvet. "'Pardieu, gentlemen,' said he, "'I hope what you have to tell me is worth the trouble, or else, I warn you, I will not pardon you for making me come here.' instead of getting a little rest after a night spent in taking and dismantling a bastion. Ah, why were you not there, gentlemen? It was warm work. "'We were in a place where it was not very cold,' replied Porthos, giving his moustache a twist which was peculiar to him. "'Hush!' said Athos. "'Oh, oh!' said D'Artagnan, comprehending the slight frown of the musketeer. "'It appears there is something fresh aboard.' "'Aramis,' said Athos, "'you went to breakfast the day before yesterday at the end of the Parpaillot, I believe.' "'Yes.' "'How did you fare?' "'For my part I ate but little. The day before yesterday was a fish-day, 
and they had nothing but meat. "'What?' said Athos. "'No fish at a seaport?' "'They say,' said Aramis, resuming his pious reading, "'that the dyke which the cardinal is making drives them all out into the open sea.' "'But that is not quite what I mean to ask you, Aramis,' replied Athos. "'I want to know if you were left alone, and nobody interrupted you.' "'Why, I think there were not many intruders. "'Yes, Athos, I know what you mean. "'We shall do very well at the Parpaillot.' "'Let us go to the Parpaillot, then, for here the walls are like sheets of paper.' D'Artagnan, who was accustomed to his friend's manner of acting, and who perceived immediately, by a word, a gesture, or a sign from him, that the circumstances were serious, took Athos's arm, and went out without saying anything. Porthos followed, chatting with Aramis. On their way they met Grimaud. Athos made him a sign to come with them. Grimaud, according to custom, obeyed in silence. The poor lad had nearly come to the pass of forgetting how to speak. They arrived at the drinking-room of the Parpaillot. It was seven o'clock in the morning, and daylight began to appear. The three friends ordered breakfast, and went into a room in which the host said they would not be disturbed. Unfortunately, the hour was badly chosen for a private conference. The morning drum had just been beaten, everyone shook off the drowsiness of night, and to dispel the humid morning air came to take a drop at the inn. Dragoons, Swiss, guardsmen, musketeers, Light horsemen succeeded one another with a rapidity which might answer the purpose of the host very well, but agreed badly with the views of the four friends. Thus they applied very curtly to the salutations, healths, and jokes of their companions. "'I see how it will be,' said Athos. "'We shall get into some petty quarrel or other, and we have no need of one just now. D'Artagnan, tell us what sort of a night you have had, and we will describe ours afterward.' "'Ah, yes,' said a light horseman, with a glass of brandy in his hand, which he sipped slowly. "'I hear you gentlemen of the guards have been in the trenches to-night, and that you did not get much the better of the Rochelet.' D'Artagnan looked at Athos to know if he ought to reply to this intruder, who thus mixed unasked in their conversation. "'Well,' said Athos, "'don't you hear Monsieur de Boussigny?' who does you the honour to ask you a question? Relate what has passed during the night, since these gentlemen desire to know it. "'Have you not taken a bastion?' said a Swiss, who was drinking rum out of a beer-glass. "'Yes, monsieur,' said D'Artagnan, bowing. "'We have had that honour. We even have, as you may have heard, introduced a barrel of powder under one of the angles, which in blowing up made a very pretty breach without reckoning that the bastion was not built yesterday all the rest of the building was badly shaken and what bastion is it asked a dragoon with a sabre run through a goose which he was taking to be cooked the bastion saint gervais replied d'artagnan from behind which the rochelet annoyed our workmen was that affair hot yes moderately so we lost five men and the Rochelet eight or ten. Bausimple, said the Swiss, who, notwithstanding the admirable collection of oaths possessed by the German language, had acquired a habit of swearing in French. But it is probable, 
said the light horseman, that they will send pioneers this morning to repair the bastion. Yes, that's probable, said D'Artagnan. Gentlemen, said Athos, a wager. Ah, vui, a wager, cried the Swiss. What is it? said the light horseman. Stop a bit, said the dragoon, placing his sabre like a spit upon the two large iron dogs which held the firebrands in the chimney. Stop a bit, I am in it. You cursed host, a dripping pan immediately, that I may not lose a drop of the fat of this estimable bird. You were right, said the Swiss. Goose grease is good with bastry. There, said the dragoon. Now for the wager. We listen, Monsieur Athos. Yes, the wager, said the light horseman. Well, Monsieur de Busigny, I will bet you, said Athos, that my three companions, Messieurs Porthos, Aramis, and D'Artagnan, and myself, will go and breakfast in the Bastion Saint-Gervais, and we will remain there an hour by the watch, whatever the enemy may do to dislodge us. Porthos and Aramis looked at each other. They began to comprehend. But, said D'Artagnan, in the ear of Athos, you are going to get us all killed without mercy. We are much more likely to be killed, said Athos, if we do not go. My faith, gentlemen, said Porthos, turning round upon his chair and twisting his moustache, that's a fair bet, I hope. I take it, said Monsieur de Busigny, so let us fix the stake. You are four gentlemen, said Athos, and we are four. An unlimited dinner for eight. Will that do? Capitally, replied Monsieur de Busigny. Perfectly, said the dragoon. That shoots me, said the Swiss. The fourth auditor, who during all this conversation had played a mute part, made a sign of the head in proof that he acquiesced in the proposition. "'The breakfast for these gentlemen is ready,' said the host. "'Well, bring it,' said Athos. The host obeyed. Athos called Grimaud, pointed to a large basket which lay in a corner, and made a sign to him to wrap the viands up in the napkins. Grimaud understood that it was to be a breakfast on the grass, took the basket, packed up the viands, added the bottles, and then took the basket on his arm. "'But where are you going to eat my breakfast?' asked the host. "'What matter if you are paid for it?' said Athos, and he threw two pistoles majestically on the table. "'Shall I give you the change, my officer?' said the host. "'No, only add two bottles of champagne, and the difference will be for the napkins.' The host had not quite so good a bargain as he at first hoped for, but he made amends by slipping in two bottles of Anjou wine instead of two bottles of champagne. "'Monsieur de Boussigny,' said Athos, "'will you be so kind as to set your watch with mine, or permit me to regulate mine by yours?' "'Which you please, monsieur,' said the light horseman, drawing from his fob a very handsome watch, studded with diamonds. "'Half-past seven. Thirty-five minutes after seven, said Athos, by which you perceive I am five minutes faster than you. And bowing to all the astonished persons present, the young men took the road to the Bastion Saint-Gervais, followed by Grimaud, who carried the basket, 
ignorant of where he was going, but in the passive obedience which Athos had taught him not even thinking of asking. As long as they were within the circle of the camp, the four friends did not exchange one word. Besides, they were followed by the curious, who, hearing of the wager, were anxious to know how they would come out of it. But when once they passed the line of circumvallation, and found themselves in the open plain, D'Artagnan, who was completely ignorant of what was going forward, thought it was time to demand an explanation. "'And now, my dear Athos,' said he, "'do me the kindness to tell me where we are going?' "'Why, you see plainly enough, we are going to the bastion. But what are we going to do there? You know well that we go to breakfast there.' "'But why did we not breakfast at the Parpeot?' "'Because we have very important matters to communicate to one another, and it was impossible to talk five minutes in that inn without being annoyed by all those importunate fellows, who keep coming in, saluting you, and addressing you. Here, at least,' said Athos, pointing to the bastion, "'they will not come and disturb us.' "'It appears to me,' said d'artagnan with that prudence which allied itself in him so naturally with excessive bravery that we could have found some retired place on the downs or the seashore where we should have been seen all four conferring together so that at the end of a quarter of an hour the cardinal would have been informed by his spies that we were holding a council yes said aramis athos is right anima advertuntur in desertis a desert would not have been amiss said porthos but it behooved us to find it there is no desert where a bird cannot pass over one's head where a fish cannot leap out of the water where a rabbit cannot come out of its burrow and i believe that bird fish and rabbit each becomes a spy of the cardinal better then pursue our enterprise from which, besides, we cannot retreat without shame. We have made a wager, a wager which could not have been foreseen, and of which I defy any one to divine the true cause. We are going, in order to win it, to remain an hour in the bastion. Either we shall be attacked, or not. If we are not, we shall have all the time to talk, and nobody will hear us, for I guarantee the walls of the bastion have no ears." If we are, we will talk of our affairs just the same. Moreover, in defending ourselves, we shall cover ourselves with glory. You see that everything is to our advantage. Yes, said D'Artagnan, but we shall indubitably attract a ball. Well, my dear, replied Athos, you know well that the balls most to be dreaded are not from the enemy. But for such an expedition we surely ought to have brought our muskets. "'You are stupid, friend Porthos. Why should we load ourselves with a useless burden?' "'I don't find a good musket, twelve cartridges, and a powder-flask very useless in the face of an enemy.' "'Well,' replied Athos, "'have you not heard what D'Artagnan said?' "'What did he say?' demanded Porthos. "'D'Artagnan said that in the attack of last night eight or ten Frenchmen were killed, and as many Rochelais.' what then the bodies were not plundered were they it appears the conquerors had something else to do well well 
we shall find their muskets, their cartridges, and their flasks, and instead of four musketoons and twelve balls, we shall have fifteen guns and a hundred charges to fire. Oh, Athos, said Aramis, truly you are a great man. Porthos nodded in sign of agreement. D'Artagnan alone did not seem convinced. Grimaud no doubt shared the misgivings of the young man, for seeing that they continued to advance toward the bastion, something he had till then doubted, he pulled his master by the skirt of his coat. "'Where are we going?' asked he, by a gesture. Athos pointed to the bastion. "'But,' said Grimaud, in that same silent dialect, "'we shall leave our skins there.' Athos raised his eyes and his finger toward heaven. Grimaud put his basket on the ground, and sat down with a shake of the head. Athos took a pistol from his belt, looked to see if it was properly primed, cocked it, and placed the muzzle close to Grimaud's ear. Grimaud was on his legs again as if by a spring. Athos then made him a sign to take up his basket, and to walk on first. Grimaud obeyed. All that Grimaud gained by this momentary pantomime was to pass from the rear-guard, to the vanguard. Arrived at the bastion, the four friends turned round. More than three hundred soldiers of all kinds were assembled at the gate of the camp, and in a separate group might be distinguished Monsieur de Boussigny, the dragoon, the Swiss, and the fourth better. Athos took off his hat, placed it on the end of his sword, and waved it in the air. All the spectators returned him his salute, accompanying this courtesy with a loud hurrah which was audible to the four, after which all four disappeared in the bastion, whither Grimaud had preceded them. End of chapter. Chapter 47 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 47 The Council of the Musketeers As Athos had foreseen, the bastion was only occupied by a dozen corpses, French and Rochelet. Gentlemen, said Athos, who had assumed the command of the expedition. While Grimaud spreads the table, let us begin by collecting the guns and cartridges together. We can talk while performing that necessary task. These gentlemen, added he, pointing to the bodies, cannot hear us. But we could throw them into the ditch, said Porthos, after having assured ourselves they have nothing in their pockets. Yes, said Athos, that's Grimaud's business. Well, then, cried D'Artagnan, pray let Grimaud search them and throw them over the walls. Heaven forfend, said Athos, they may serve us. These bodies serve us, said Porthos. You are mad, dear friend. Judge not rashly, say the gospel and the cardinal, replied Athos. How many guns, gentlemen? Twelve, replied Aramis. How many shots? A hundred. That's quite as many as we shall want. Let us load the guns. The four musketeers went to work, and as they were loading the last musket, Grimaud announced that the breakfast was ready. Athos replied, always by gestures, that all was well, 
and indicated to Grimaud, by pointing to a turret that resembled a pepper-caster, that he was to stand as sentinel. Only, to alleviate the tediousness of the duty, Athos allowed him to take a loaf, two cutlets, and a bottle of wine. "'And now to table,' said Athos. The four friends seated themselves on the ground with their legs crossed like Turks, or even tailors. "'And now,' said D'Artagnan, as there is no longer any fear of being overheard, I hope you are going to let me into your secret. I hope at the same time to procure you amusement and glory, gentlemen, said Athos. I have induced you to take a charming promenade. Here is a delicious breakfast, and yonder are five hundred persons, as you may see through the loopholes, taking us for heroes or madmen, two classes of imbeciles greatly resembling each other. "'But the secret,' said D'Artagnan. "'The secret is,' said Athos, "'that I saw Milady last night.' D'Artagnan was lifting a glass to his lips, but at the name of Milady, his hand trembled so that he was obliged to put the glass on the ground again for fear of spilling the contents. "'You saw your—' "'Hush!' interrupted Athos. "'You forget, my dear.' You forget that these gentlemen are not initiated into my family affairs like yourself. I have seen Milady. Where? demanded D'Artagnan. Within two leagues of this place, at the inn of the Red Dovecoat. In that case I am lost, said D'Artagnan. Not so bad yet, replied Athos, for by this time she must have quit the shores of France. D'Artagnan breathed again. "'But after all,' asked Porthos, "'who is Milady?' "'A charming woman,' said Athos, sipping a glass of sparkling wine. "'Villainous host!' cried he. "'He has given us Anjou wine instead of champagne, and fancies we know no better.' Ah. "'Yes,' continued he, "'a charming woman, who entertained kind views toward our friend D'Artagnan, who, on his part, has given her some offence for which she tried to revenge herself a month ago by having him killed by two musket-shots, a week ago by trying to poison him, and yesterday by demanding his head of the cardinal. "'What? By demanding my head of the cardinal?' cried D'Artagnan, pale with terror. "'Yes, that is true as the gospel,' said Porthos. "'I heard her with my own ears.' "'I also.' said Aramis. Then, said D'Artagnan, letting his arm fall with discouragement, it is useless to struggle longer. I may as well blow my brains out, and all will be over. That's the last folly to be committed, said Athos, seeing it is the only one for which there is no remedy. But I can never escape, said D'Artagnan, with such enemies. First, my stranger of Meung, then de ward to whom i have given three sword wounds next milady whose secret i have discovered finally the cardinal whose vengeance i have balked well said athos that only makes four and we are four one for one pardieu if we may believe the signs grimaud is making we are about to have to do with a very different number of people what is it grimaud "'Considering the gravity of the occasion, I permit you to speak, my friend, but be laconic, I beg. What do you see?' "'A troop.' "'Of how many persons?' Twenty men.' "'What sort of men?' Sixteen pioneers, four soldiers.' 
How far distant? Five hundred paces. Good. We have just time to finish this fowl and to drink one glass of wine to your health, D'Artagnan. To your health, repeated Porthos and Aramis. Well, then, to my health, although I am very much afraid that your good wishes will not be of great service to me. Bah! said Athos. God is great, as say the followers of Mohammed, and the future is in his hands. Then, swallowing the contents of his glass, which he put down close to him, Athos arose carelessly, took the musket next to him, and drew near to one of the loopholes. Porthos, Aramis, and D'Artagnan followed his example. As to Grimaud, he received orders to place himself behind the four friends in order to reload their weapons. Pardieu, said Athos, it was hardly worth while to distribute ourselves for twenty fellows armed with pickaxes, mattocks, and shovels. Grimaud had only to make them a sign to go away, and I am convinced they would have left us in peace. I doubt that, replied D'Artagnan, for they are advancing very resolutely. Besides, in addition to the pioneers, there are four soldiers and a brigadier armed with muskets. That's because they don't see us, said Athos. My faith, said Aramis, I must confess, I feel a great repugnance to fire on these poor devils of civilians. He is a bad priest, said Porthos, who is pity for heretics. In truth, said Athos, Aramis is right, I will warn them. What the devil are you going to do? cried D'Artagnan. You will be shot. But Athos heeded not his advice. Mounting on the breach, with his musket in one hand and his hat in the other, he said, bowing courteously and addressing the soldiers and the pioneers, who, astonished at this apparition, stopped fifty paces from the bastion, "'Gentlemen, a few friends and myself are about to breakfast in this bastion. Now, you know nothing is more disagreeable than being disturbed when one is at breakfast. We request you, then, if you really have business here—' to wait till we have finished our repast, or to come again a short time hence, unless, which would be far better, you form this salutary resolution to quit the side of the rebels and come and drink with us to the health of the King of France. "'Take care, Athos,' cried D'Artagnan. "'Don't you see they are aiming?' "'Yes, yes,' said Athos, "'but they are only civilians, very bad marksmen, who will be sure not to hit me.' In fact, at the same instant four shots were fired, and the balls were flattened against the wall around Athos, but not one touched him. Four shots replied to them almost instantaneously, but much better aimed than those of the aggressors. Three soldiers fell dead, and one of the pioneers was wounded. "'Grimaud,' said Athos, still on the breach, "'another musket!' Grimaud immediately obeyed. On their part the three friends had reloaded their arms. A second discharge followed the first. The brigadier and two pioneers fell dead. The rest of the troop took to flight. "'Now, gentlemen, a sortie!' cried Athos. And the four friends rushed out of the fort, gained the field of battle, picked up the four muskets of the privates and the half-pike of the brigadier, and convinced that the fugitives would not stop till they reached the city, turned again toward the bastion, bearing with them the trophies of their victory. "'Reload the muskets, Grimaud,' said Athos, "'and we, gentlemen, will go on with our breakfast, and resume our conversation. 
Where were we? I recollect you were saying, said D'Artagnan, that after having demanded my head of the cardinal, Milady had quit the shores of France. Whither goes she? asked he, strongly interested in the route Milady followed. She goes into England, said Athos. With what view? With the view of assassinating, or causing to be assassinated, the Duke of Buckingham. D'Artagnan uttered an exclamation of surprise and indignation. "'But this is infamous!' cried he. "'As to that,' said Athos, "'I beg you to believe that I care very little about it. "'Now you have done, Grimaud, take our brigadier's half-pike, "'tie a napkin to it, and plant it on top of our bastion, "'that these rebels of Rochelet may see that they have to deal "'with brave and loyal soldiers of the king.' Grimaud obeyed without replying. An instant afterward, the white flag was floating over the heads of the four friends. A thunder of applause saluted its appearance. Half the camp was at the barrier. "'How?' replied D'Artagnan. "'You care little if she kills Buckingham or causes him to be killed. But the Duke is our friend.' "'The Duke is English. The Duke fights against us. Let her do what she likes with the Duke.' I care no more about him than an empty bottle. And Athos threw fifteen paces from him, an empty bottle from which he had poured the last drop into his glass. A moment, said D'Artagnan. I will not abandon Buckingham thus. He gave us some very fine horses. And moreover, very handsome saddles, said Porthos, who at the moment wore on his cloak the lace of his own. Besides, said Aramis, God desires the conversion and not the death of a sinner. Amen, said Athos, and we will return to that subject later, if such be your pleasure. But what for the moment engaged my attention most earnestly, and I am sure you will understand me, D'Artagnan, was the getting from this woman a kind of carte blanche which she had extorted from the cardinal, and by means of which she could with impunity get rid of you and perhaps of us. "'But this creature must be a demon,' said Porthos, holding out his plate to Aramis, who was cutting up a fowl. "'And this carte blanche,' said D'Artagnan, "'this carte blanche, does it remain in her hands?' "'No, it passed into mine. I will not say without trouble, for if I did, I should tell a lie. "'My dear Athos, I shall no longer count the number of times I am indebted to you for my life.' "'Then it was to go to her that you left us,' said Aramis. "'Exactly.' "'And you have that letter of the cardinal?' said D'Artagnan. "'Here it is,' said Athos, and he took the invaluable paper from the pocket of his uniform. D'Artagnan unfolded it with one hand, whose trembling he did not even attempt to conceal, to read, "'December 3rd, 1627. It is by my order and for the good of the State,' that the bearer of this has done what he has done, Richelieu. "'In fact,' said Aramis, "'it is an absolution, according to rule.' "'That paper must be torn to pieces,' said D'Artagnan, who fancied he read in it his sentence of death. "'On the contrary,' said Athos, "'it must be preserved carefully. I would not give up this paper if covered with as many gold pieces.' "'And what will she do now?' asked the young man. "'Why,' replied Athos carelessly, 
she is probably going to write to the cardinal that a damned musketeer named athos has taken her safe conduct from her by force she will advise him in the same letter to get rid of his two friends aramis and porthos at the same time the cardinal will remember that these are the same men who have often crossed his path and then some fine morning he will arrest d'artagnan and for fear he should feel lonely he will send us to keep him company in the bastille go to it appears to me you make dull jokes my dear said porthos i do not jest said athos do you know said porthos that to twist that damned milady's neck would be a smaller sin than to twist those of these poor devils of huguenots who have committed no other crime than singing in french the psalms we sing in latin what says the abbe asked athos quietly i say i am entirely of porthos's opinion replied aramis and i too said d'artagnan fortunately she is far off said porthos for i confess she would worry me if she were here she worries me in england as well as in france said athos she worries me everywhere said d'artagnan but when you held her in your power why did you not drown her strangle her hang her said porthos it is only the dead who do not return you think so porthos replied the musketeer with a sad smile which d'artagnan alone understood i have an idea said d'artagnan what is it said the musketeers to arms cried grimaud the young men sprang up and seized their muskets this time a small troop advanced consisting of from twenty to twenty-five men but they were not pioneers they were soldiers of the garrison shall we return to the camp said porthos i don't think the sides are equal impossible for three reasons replied athos the first that we have not finished breakfast the second that we still have some very important things to say and the third that it yet wants ten minutes before the lapse of the hour well then said aramis we must form a plan of battle that's very simple replied athos as soon as the enemy are within musket-shot we must fire upon them if they continue to advance we must fire again we must fire as long as we have loaded guns if those who remain of the troop persist in coming to the assault we will allow the besiegers to get as far as the ditch and then we will push down upon their heads that strip of wall which keeps its perpendicular by a miracle bravo cried porthos decidedly athos you were born to be a general and the cardinal who fancies himself a great soldier is nothing beside you gentlemen said athos no divided attention i beg let each one pick out his man i cover mine said d'artagnan and i mine said porthos and i mine said aramis fire then said athos the four muskets made but one report but four men fell the drum immediately beat and the little troop advanced at charging pace then the shots were repeated without regularity but always aimed with the same accuracy nevertheless as if they had been aware of the numerical weakness of the friends the rochelais continued to advance in quick time with every three shots at least two men fell 
but the march of those who remained was not slackened. Arrived at the foot of the bastion, there were still more than a dozen of the enemy. A last discharge welcomed them, but did not stop them. They jumped into the ditch, and prepared to scale the breach. "'Now, my friends,' said Athos, "'finish them at a blow. To the wall! To the wall!' And the four friends, seconded by Grimaud, pushed with the barrels of their muskets an enormous sheet of the wall, which bent as if pushed by the wind, and detaching itself from its base, fell with a horrible crash into the ditch. Then a fearful crash was heard, a cloud of dust mounted toward the sky, and all was over. "'Can we have destroyed them all, from the first to the last?' said Athos. "'My faith, it appears so,' said D'Artagnan. "'No!' cried Porthos. "'There go three or four, limping away.' In fact, three or four of these unfortunate men, covered with dirt and blood, fled along the hollow way, and at length regained the city. These were all who were left of the little troop. Athos looked at his watch. "'Gentlemen,' said he, "'we have been here an hour, and our wager is won. But we will be fair players. Besides, D'Artagnan has not told us his idea yet.' And the musketeer, with his usual coolness, reseated himself before the remains of the breakfast. "'My idea,' said D'Artagnan. "'Yes, you said you had an idea,' said Athos. "'Oh, I remember,' said D'Artagnan. "'Well, I will go to England a second time. I will go and find Buckingham.' "'You shall not do that, D'Artagnan,' said Athos, coolly. "'And why not? Have I not been there once?' Yes, but at that period we were not at war. At that period Buckingham was an ally, and not an enemy. What you would now do amounts to treason. D'Artagnan perceived the force of this reasoning, and was silent. But, said Porthos, I think I have an idea, in my turn. Silence for Monsieur Porthos's idea, said Aramis. I will ask leave of absence of Monsieur de Treville, on some pretext or other which you must invent. I am not very clever at pretexts. Milady does not know me. I will get access to her without her suspecting me, and when I catch my beauty, I will strangle her. Well, replied Athos, I am not far from approving the idea of Monsieur Porthos. For shame, said Aramis. Kill a woman? No, listen to me. I have the true idea. Let us see your idea, Aramis, said Athos, who felt much deference for the young musketeer. We must inform the queen. Ah, my faith, yes, said Porthos and D'Artagnan at the same time. We are coming nearer to it now. Inform the queen, said Athos. And how? Have we relations with the court? Could we send any one to Paris without its being known in the camp? From here to Paris it is a hundred and forty leagues. Before our letter was at Angers, we should be in a dungeon. As to remitting a letter with safety to Her Majesty, said Aramis, colouring, I will take that upon myself. I know a clever person at Tours. Aramis stopped on seeing Athos smile. "'Well, do you not adopt this means, Athos?' said D'Artagnan. "'I uh, do not reject it altogether,' said Athos. 
but I wish to remind Aramis that he cannot quit the camp, and that nobody but one of ourselves is trustworthy, that two hours after the messenger has set out, all the capuchins, all the police, all the black caps of the cardinal, will know your letter by heart, and you and your clever person will be arrested. Without reckoning, objected Porthos, that the Queen would save Monsieur de Buckingham, but would take no heed of us. Gentlemen, said D'Artagnan, what Porthos says is full of sense. Ah, ah, but what's going on in the city yonder? said Athos. They are beating the general alarm. The four friends listened, and the sound of the drum plainly reached them. "'You see, they are going to send a whole regiment against us,' said Athos. "'You don't think of holding out against a whole regiment, do you?' said Porthos. "'Why not?' said the musketeer. "'I feel myself quite in a humour for it, and I would hold out before an army if we had taken the precaution to bring a dozen more bottles of wine.' "'Upon my word, the drum draws near,' said D'Artagnan. "'Let it come,' said Athos. "'It is a quarter of an hour's journey from here to the city, consequently a quarter of an hour's journey from the city to hither. That is more than time enough for us to devise a plan. If we go from this place we shall never find another so suitable.' "'Ah, stop! I have it, gentlemen! The right idea has just occurred to me. Tell us!' Allow me to give Grimaud some indispensable orders. Athos made a sign for his lackey to approach. Grimaud, said Athos, pointing to the bodies which lay under the wall of the bastion, take those gentlemen, set them up against the wall, put their hats upon their heads and their guns in their hands. Oh, the great man, cried D'Artagnan, I comprehend now. You comprehend? said Porthos. "'And do you comprehend, Grimaud?' said Aramis. Grimaud made a sign in the affirmative. "'That's all that is necessary,' said Athos. "'Now for my idea.' "'I should like, however, to comprehend,' said Porthos. "'That is useless.' "'Yes, yes, Athos's idea,' cried Aramis and D'Artagnan at the same time. "'This milady, this woman, this creature, this demon—' "'Has a brother-in-law, as I think you told me, D'Artagnan?' "'Yes, I know him very well, and I also believe that he has not a very warm affection for his sister-in-law.' "'There is no harm in that. If he detested her, it would be all the better,' replied Athos. "'In that case we are as well off as we wish.' "'And yet,' said Porthos, "'I would like to know what Grimaud is about.' "'Silence, Porthos!' said Aramis. What is her brother-in-law's name? Lord de Winter. Where is he now? He returned to London at the first sound of war. Well, that's just the man we want, said Athos. It is he whom we must warn. We will have him informed that his sister-in-law is on the point of having someone assassinated, and beg him not to lose sight of her. There is in London, I hope, some establishment like that of the Magdalens, or of the repentant daughters. He must place his sister in one of these, and we shall be in peace. Yes, said D'Artagnan, till she comes out. Ah, my faith, said Athos, you require too much, D'Artagnan. 
I have given you all I have, and I beg leave to tell you that this is the bottom of my sack. But I think it would be still better, said Aramis, to inform the Queen and Lord de Winter at the same time. Yes, but who is to carry the letter to Tours, and who to London? I answer for Bazin, said Aramis. And I for Planchet, said D'Artagnan. Ay, said Porthos, if we cannot leave the camp, our lackeys may. To be sure they may, and this very day we will write the letters, said Aramis. Give the lackeys money, and they will start. We will give them money, replied Athos. Have you any money? The four friends looked at one another, and a cloud came over the brows which but lately had been so cheerful. "'Look out!' cried D'Artagnan. "'I see black points and red points moving yonder. Why did you talk of a regiment, Athos? It is a veritable army!' "'My faith, yes,' said Athos. "'There they are. See the sneaks come, without drum or trumpet. Ah, ah, have you finished, Grimaud?' Grimaud made a sign in the affirmative, and pointed to a dozen bodies which he had set up in the most picturesque attitudes. Some carried arms, others seemed to be taking aim, and the remainder appeared merely to be sword in hand. "'Bravo!' said Athos. "'That does honour to your imagination.' "'All very well,' said Porthos. "'But I should like to understand.' "'Let us decamp first, and you will understand afterward.' A moment, gentlemen, a moment. Give Grimaud time to clear away the breakfast. Ah, ah, said Aramis. The black points and the red points are visibly enlarging. I am of D'Artagnan's opinion. We have no time to lose in regaining our camp. My faith, said Athos, I have nothing to say against a retreat. We bet upon one hour, and we have stayed an hour and a half. Nothing can be said. Let us be off, gentlemen, let us be off! Grimaud was already ahead, with the basket and the dessert. The four friends followed, ten paces behind him. "'What the devil shall we do now, gentlemen?' cried Athos. "'Have you forgotten anything?' said Aramis. "'The white flag, morbleu! We must not leave a flag in the hands of the enemy, even if that flag be but a napkin.' and Athos ran back to the bastion, mounted the platform, and bore off the flag. But as the Rochelais had arrived within musket range, they opened a terrible fire upon this man, who appeared to expose himself for pleasure's sake. But Athos might be said to bear a charmed life. The balls passed and whistled all around him. Not one struck him. Athos waved his flag, turning his back on the guards of the city, and saluting those of the camp. On both sides loud cries arose, on the one side cries of anger, on the other cries of enthusiasm. A second discharge followed the first, and three balls, by passing through it, made the napkin really a flag. Cries were heard from the camp, "'Come down! Come down!' Athos came down. His friends, who anxiously awaited him, saw him returned with joy. "'Come along, Athos, come along!' cried D'Artagnan. Now we have found everything except money. It would be stupid to be killed. But Athos continued to march majestically, whatever remarks his companions made, and they, finding their remarks useless, regulated their pace by his. 
Grimaud and his basket were far in advance, out of the range of the balls. At the end of an instant they heard a furious fusillade. "'What's that?' asked Porthos. "'What are they firing at now? I hear no balls whistle, and I see nobody.' "'They are firing at the corpses,' replied Athos. "'But the dead cannot return their fire.' "'Certainly not. They will then fancy it is an ambuscade. They will deliberate.' and by the time they have found out the pleasantry, we shall be out of the range of their balls. That renders it useless to get a pleurisy by too much haste. "'Oh, I comprehend now,' said the astonished Porthos. "'That's lucky,' said Athos, shrugging his shoulders. On their part, the French, on seeing the four friends return at such a step, uttered cries of enthusiasm. At length a fresh discharge was heard, and this time the balls came rattling among the stones around the four friends, and whistling sharply in their ears. The Rochelais had at last taken possession of the bastion. "'These Rochelais are bungling fellows,' said Athos. "'How many have we killed of them? A dozen? Or fifteen? How many did we crush under the wall? Eight or ten? And in exchange for all that, not even a scratch.' Ah, but what is the matter with your hand, D'Artagnan? It bleeds seemingly. Oh, it is nothing, said D'Artagnan. A spent ball? Not even that. What is it, then? We have said that Athos loved D'Artagnan like a child, and this sombre and inflexible personage felt the anxiety of a parent for the young man. Only grazed a little, replied D'Artagnan. My fingers were caught between two stones— that of the wall and that of my ring, and the skin was broken. "'That comes of wearing diamonds, my master,' said Athos disdainfully. "'Ah, to be sure!' cried Porthos. "'There is a diamond. Why the devil, then, do we plague ourselves against money when there is a diamond?' "'Stop a bit,' said Aramis. "'Well thought of, Porthos. This time you have an idea.' "'Undoubtedly!' said Porthos, drawing himself up at Athos's compliment. "'As there is a diamond, let us sell it.' "'But,' said D'Artagnan, "'it is the Queen's diamond.' "'The stronger reason why it should be sold,' replied Athos. "'The Queen's saver, Monsieur de Buckingham, her lover, nothing more just. The Queen's saving us, her friends, nothing more moral. Let us sell the diamond. What says Monsieur the Abbe?' I don't ask Porthos. His opinion has been given. Why, I think, said Aramis, blushing as usual, that his ring not coming from a mistress, and consequently not being a love token, D'Artagnan may sell it. My dear Aramis, you speak like theology personified. Your advice, then, is to sell the diamond, replied Aramis. Well, then— said d'artagnan gaily let us sell the diamond and say no more about it the fusillade continued but the four friends were out of reach and the rochelais only fired to appease their consciences my faith it was time that idea came into porthos's head here we are at the camp therefore gentlemen not a word more of this affair we are observed they are coming to meet us we shall be carried in triumph in fact, as we have said, the whole camp was in motion. More than two thousand persons had assisted, 
as at a spectacle in this fortunate but wild undertaking of the four friends an undertaking of which they were far from suspecting the real motive nothing was heard but cries of live the musketeers live the guards monsieur de busigny was the first to come and shake athos by the hand and acknowledged that the wager was lost the dragoon and the swiss followed him and all their comrades followed the dragoon and the swiss there was nothing but felicitations pressures of the hand and embraces there was no end to the inextinguishable laughter at the rochelet the tumult at length became so great that the cardinal fancied there must be some riot and sent la houdinière his captain of the guards to inquire what was going on the affair was described to the messenger with all the effervescence of enthusiasm well asked the cardinal on seeing la houdinière return well monseigneur replied the latter three musketeers and a guardsman laid a wager with monsieur de busigny that they would go and breakfast in the bastion saint gervais and while breakfasting they held it for two hours against the enemy and have killed i don't know how many rochelais did you inquire the names of those three musketeers yes monseigneur what are their names monsieur athos porthos and aramis still my three brave fellows murmured the cardinal and the guardsman d'artagnan still my young scapegrace positively these four men must be on my side the same evening the cardinal spoke to monsieur de treville of the exploit of the morning which was the talk of the whole camp monsieur de treville who had received the account of the adventure from the mouths of the heroes of it related it in all of its details to his eminence not forgetting the episode of the napkin that's well monsieur de treville said the cardinal pray let that napkin be sent to me i will have three fleur-de-lis embroidered on it in gold and will give it to your company as a standard monseigneur said monsieur de treville that will be unjust to the guardsmen monsieur d'artagnan is not with me he serves under monsieur dessessart well then take him said the cardinal when four men are so much attached to one another it is only fair that they should serve in the same company that same evening monsieur de treville announced this good news to the three musketeers and d'artagnan inviting all four to breakfast with him next morning d'artagnan was beside himself with joy we know that the dream of his life had been to become a musketeer the three friends were likewise greatly delighted my faith said d'artagnan to athos you had a triumphant idea as you said we have acquired glory and were enabled to carry on a conversation of the highest importance which we can resume now without anybody suspecting us for with the help of god we shall henceforth pass for cardinalists that evening d'artagnan went to present his respects to monsieur dessessart and inform him of his promotion monsieur dessessart who esteemed d'artagnan made him offers of help as this change would entail expenses for equipment d'artagnan refused but thinking the opportunity a good one he begged him to have the diamond he put into his hand valued as he wished to turn it into money the next day monsieur dessessart's valet came to d'artagnan's lodging and gave him a bag containing seven thousand livres this was the price of the queen's diamond End of chapter.
Chapter Forty Eight of The Three Musketeers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Chapter Forty Eight A Family Affair. Athos had invented the phrase, family affair. A family affair was not subject to the investigation of the cardinal. A family affair concerned nobody. People might employ themselves in a family affair before all the world. Therefore Athos had invented the phrase, family affair. Aramis had discovered the idea, the lackeys. Porthos had discovered the means, the diamond. D'Artagnan alone had discovered nothing. He, ordinarily the most inventive of the four, but it must also be said that the very name of Milady paralyzed him. Ah, no, we were mistaken. He had discovered a purchaser for his diamond. The breakfast at Monsieur de Treville's was as gay and cheerful as possible. D'Artagnan already wore his uniform, for being nearly of the same size as Aramis, and as Aramis was so liberally paid by the publisher, who purchased his poem, as to allow him to buy everything double, he sold his friend a complete outfit. D'Artagnan would have been at the height of his wishes if he had not constantly seen Milady like a dark cloud hovering in the horizon. After breakfast it was agreed that they should meet again in the evening at Athos's lodging, and there finished their plans. D'Artagnan passed the day in exhibiting his musketeer's uniform in every street of the camp. In the evening, at the appointed hour, the four friends met. There only remained three things to decide. What they should write to Milady's brother, what they should write to the clever person at Tours, and which should be the lackeys to carry the letters. Everyone offered his own. Athos talked of the discretion of Grimaud, who never spoke a word but when his master unlocked his mouth. Porthos boasted of the strength of Mousqueton, who was big enough to thrash four men of ordinary size. Aramis, confiding in the address of Bazin, made a pompous elogium on his candidate. Finally, D'Artagnan had entire faith in the bravery of Planchet, and reminded them of the manner in which he had conducted himself in the ticklish affair of Boulogne. These four virtues disputed the prize for a length of time, and gave birth to magnificent speeches which we do not repeat here for fear they should be deemed too long. Unfortunately, said Athos, he whom we send must possess in himself alone the four qualities united. But where is such a lackey to be found? Not to be found, cried Athos. I know it well, so take Grimaud. Take Mousqueton. Take Bazin. Take Planchet. Planchet is brave and shrewd. They are two qualities out of the four. Gentlemen, said Aramis, the principal question is not to know which of our four lackeys is the most discreet, the most strong, the most clever, or the most brave. The principal thing is to know which loves money the best. What Aramis says is very sensible, replied Athos. We must speculate upon the faults of people, and not upon their virtues. Monsieur Abbe, you are a great moralist. Doubtless, said Aramis, for we not only require to be well served in order to succeed, but, moreover, not to fail. 
for in case of failure heads are in question, not for our lackeys. Speak lower, Aramis, said Athos. That's wise. Not for the lackeys, resumed Aramis, but for the master. For the masters, we may say. Are our lackeys sufficiently devoted to us to risk their lives for us? No. My faith, said D'Artagnan, I would almost answer for Planchet. Well, my dear friend, add to his natural devotedness a good sum of money, and then, instead of answering for him once, answer for him twice. Why, good God, you will be deceived just the same, said Athos, who was an optimist when things were concerned, and a pessimist when men were in question. They will promise everything for the sake of the money, and on the road fear will prevent them from acting. Once taken, they will be pressed. When pressed, they will confess everything. What the devil! We are not children. To reach England, Athos lowered his voice, all France, covered with spies and creatures of the cardinal, must be crossed. A passport for embarkation must be obtained, and the party must be acquainted with English in order to ask the way to London. Really, I think the thing is very difficult. Not at all, cried D'Artagnan, who was anxious the matter should be accomplished. On the contrary, I think it very easy. It would be, no doubt, parbleu, if we write to Lord de Winter about affairs of vast importance, of the horrors of the cardinal. Speak lower, said Athos. Of intrigues and secrets of state, continued D'Artagnan, complying with the recommendation. There can be no doubt we would all be broken on the wheel. But for God's sake do not forget, as you yourself said, Athos, that we only write to him concerning a family affair, that we only write to him to entreat that as soon as Milady arrives in London he will put it out of her power to injure us. I will write to him, then, nearly in these terms. "'Let us see,' said Athos, assuming in advance a critical look. "'Monsieur and dear friend—' "'Ah, yes, dear friend to an Englishman,' interrupted Athos. "'Well commenced. Bravo, D'Artagnan. Only with that word you would be quartered instead of being broken to the wheel.' Uh, well, perhaps. I will say, then, monsieur, quite short. You may even say, my lord, replied Athos, who stickled for propriety. My lord, do you remember the little goat pasture of the Luxembourg? Good, the Luxembourg. One might believe this is an allusion to the Queen Mother. That's ingenious, said Athos. Well, then, we will put simply, my lord— do you remember a certain little enclosure where your life was spared? My dear D'Artagnan, you will never make anything but a very bad secretary. Where your life was spared? For shame, that's unworthy. A man of spirit is not to be reminded of such services. A benefit reproached is an offence committed. The devil, said D'Artagnan, you are insupportable. If the letter must be written under your censure, my faith, I renounce the task. And you will do right. Handle the musket and the sword, my dear fellow. You will come off splendidly at those two exercises. But pass the pen over to Monsieur Abbe. That's his province. 
"'Aye, aye,' said Porthos, "'pass the pen to Aramis, who writes theses in Latin.' "'Well, so be it,' said D'Artagnan. "'Draw up this note for us, Aramis. But by our holy father the Pope, cut it short, for I shall prune you in my turn, I warn you.' "'I ask no better.' said aramis with that ingenious air of confidence which every poet has in himself but let me be properly acquainted with the subject i have heard here and there that this sister-in-law was a hussy i have obtained proof of it by listening to her conversation with the cardinal lower sacre bleu said athos but continued aramis the details escape me and me also said porthos D'Artagnan and Athos looked at each other for some time in silence. At length Athos, after serious reflection and becoming more pale than usual, made a sign of assent to D'Artagnan, who by it understood he was at liberty to speak. "'Well, this is what you have to say,' said D'Artagnan. "'My lord, your sister-in-law is an infamous woman, who wished to have you killed that she might inherit your wealth. But she could not marry your brother.' being already married in france and having been d'artagnan stopped as if seeking for the word and looked at athos repudiated by her husband said athos because she had been branded continued d'artagnan bah cried porthos impossible what do you say that she wanted to have her brother-in-law killed yes she was married asked aramis yes and her husband found out that she had a fleur-de-lis on her shoulder cried porthos yes these three yeses had been pronounced by athos each with a sadder intonation and who has seen this fleur-de-lis inquired aramis d'artagnan and i or rather to observe the chronological order i and d'artagnan replied athos and does the husband of this frightful creature still live said aramis he still lives are you quite sure of it i am he there was a moment of cold silence during which everyone was affected according to his nature this time said athos first breaking the silence d'artagnan has given us an excellent program and the letter must be written at once the devil you are right athos said aramis and it is a rather difficult matter the chancellor himself would be puzzled how to write such a letter and yet the chancellor draws up an official report very readily never mind be silent i will write aramis accordingly took the quill reflected for a few moments wrote eight or ten lines in a charming little female hand and then with a voice soft and slow as if each word had been scrupulously weighed, he read the following. My lord, the person who writes these few lines had the honour of crossing swords with you in the little enclosure of the Rue d'Enfer. As you have several times since declared yourself the friend of that person, he thinks it his duty to respond to that friendship by sending you important information. Twice you have nearly been the victim of a near relative— whom you believe to be your heir, because you are ignorant that before she contracted a marriage in England, she was already married in France. 
but the third time, which is the present, you may succumb. Your relative left La Rochelle for England during the night. Watch her arrival, for she has great and terrible projects. If you require to know positively what she is capable of, read her past history on her left shoulder. Well, now, that will do wonderfully well, said Athos. My dear Aramis, you have the pen of a secretary of state. Lord de Winter will now be upon his guard if the letter should reach him, and even if it should fall into the hands of the cardinal we shall not be compromised. But as the lackey who goes may make us believe he has been to London, and may stop at Chateauroux, let us give him only half the sum promised him, with the letter, with an agreement that he shall have the other half in exchange for the reply. Have you the diamond? continued Athos. I have what is still better, I have the price, and D'Artagnan threw the bag upon the table. At the sound of the gold Aramis raised his eyes, and Porthos started. As to Athos, he remained unmoved. How much in that little bag? Seven thousand livres, in Louis of twelve francs. Seven thousand livres! cried Porthos. That poor little diamond was worth seven thousand livres. It appears so said Athos, since here they are. I don't suppose that our friend D'Artagnan has added any of his own to the amount. But, gentlemen, in all this, said D'Artagnan, we do not think of the Queen. Let us take some heed of the welfare of her dear Buckingham. That is the least we owe her. That's true, said Athos, but that concerns Aramis. Well, replied the latter, blushing, what must I say? Oh, that's simple enough, replied Athos. Write a second letter for that clever personage who lives at Tours. Aramis resumed his pen, reflected a little, and wrote the following lines, which he immediately submitted to the approbation of his friends. My dear cousin. Ah, said Athos, this clever person is your relative, then. Uh, cousin German? go on to your cousin then aramis continued my dear cousin his eminence the cardinal whom god preserve for the happiness of france and the confusion of the enemies of the kingdom is on the point of putting an end to the hectic rebellion of la rochelle it is probable that the succour of the english fleet will never even arrive in sight of the place i will even venture to say that i am certain Monsieur de Buckingham will be prevented from setting out by some great event. His eminence is the most illustrious politician of times past, of times present, and probably of times to come. He would extinguish the sun if the sun incommoded him. Give these happy tidings to your sister, my dear cousin. I have dreamed that the unlucky Englishman was dead. I cannot recollect whether it was by steel or by poison, only of this I am sure I have dreamed he was dead, and you know my dreams never deceive me. Be assured, then, of seeing me soon return. "'Capital!' cried Athos. "'You are the king of poets, my dear Aramis. You speak like the apocalypse, and you are as true as the gospel. There is nothing now to do but to put the address to this letter.' "'That is easily done,' said Aramis. He folded the letter fancifully, and took up his pen, and wrote, To Mademoiselle Michon, 
seamstress tour the three friends looked at one another and laughed they were caught now said aramis you will please to understand gentlemen that bazin alone can carry this letter to tours my cousin knows nobody but bazin and places confidence in nobody but him any other person would fail besides bazin is ambitious and learned bazin has read history gentlemen he knows that sixtus v became pope after having kept pigs well as he means to enter the church at the same time as myself he does not despair of becoming pope in his turn or at least a cardinal you can understand that a man who has such views will never allow himself to be taken or if taken will undergo martyrdom rather than speak very well said d'artagnan i consent to bazin with all my heart but grant me planchet milady had him one day turned out of doors with sundry blows of a good stick to accelerate his motions now planchet has an excellent memory and i will be bound that sooner than relinquish any possible means of vengeance he will allow himself to be beaten to death if your arrangements at tours are your arrangements aramis those of london are mine i request then that planchet may be chosen more particularly as he has already been to london with me and knows how to speak correctly london sir if you please and my master lord d'artagnan with that you may be satisfied he can make his way both going and returning in that case said athos planchet must receive seven hundred livres for going and seven hundred livres for coming back and bazin three hundred livres for going and three hundred livres for returning that will reduce the sum to five thousand livres we will each take a thousand livres to be employed as seems good and we will leave a fund of a thousand livres under the guardianship of monsieur abbe here for extraordinary occasions or common wants will that do my dear athos said aramis you speak like nestor who was as everyone knows the wisest among the greeks well then said athos it is agreed planchet and bazin shall go everything considered i am not sorry to retain grimaud he is accustomed to my ways and i am particular yesterday's affair must have shaken him a little his voyage would upset him quite planchet was sent for and instructions were given him the matter had been named to him by d'artagnan who in the first place pointed out the money to him then the glory and then the danger i will carry the letter in the lining of my coat said planchet and if i am taken i will swallow it well but then you will not be able to fulfil your commission said d'artagnan you will give me a copy this evening which i shall know by heart to-morrow d'artagnan looked at his friends as if to say well what did i tell you now continued he addressing planchet you have eight days to get an interview with lord de winter you have eight days to return in all sixteen days if on the sixteenth day after your departure at eight o'clock in the evening you are not here no money even if it be but five minutes past eight then monsieur said planchet you must buy me a watch take this said athos with his usual careless generosity giving him his own and be a good lad remember if you talk if you babble if you get drunk 
you risk your master's head, who has so much confidence in your fidelity, and who answers for you. But remember also that if by your fault any evil happens to D'Artagnan, I will find you, wherever you may be, for the purpose of ripping up your belly. Oh, monsieur, said Planchet, humiliated by the suspicion, and moreover terrified at the calm air of the musketeer. And I, said Porthos, rolling his large eyes, remember, I will skin you alive. Ah, monsieur. And I, said Aramis, with his soft, melodious voice, remember that I will roast you at a slow fire, like a savage. Ah, oh, monsieur! Planchet began to weep. We will not venture to say whether it was from terror created by the threats, or from tenderness at seeing four friends so closely united. D'Artagnan took his hand. See, Planchet, said he, these gentlemen only say this out of affection for me, but at bottom they all like you. Ah, oh, monsieur, said Planchet, I will succeed or I will consent to be cut in quarters, and if they do cut me in quarters, be assured that not a morsel of me will speak. It was decided that Planchet should sit out the next day, at eight o'clock in the morning, in order, as he had said, that he might during the night learn the letter by heart. He gained just twelve hours by this engagement. He was to be back on the sixteenth day by eight o'clock in the evening. In the morning, as he was mounting his horse, D'Artagnan, who felt at the bottom of his heart a partiality for the duke, took Planchet aside. "'Listen,' said he to him, "'when you have given the letter to Lord de Winter and he has read it, you will further say to him, "'Watch over his grace, Lord Buckingham, for they wish to assassinate him. But this Planchet is so serious and important that I have not informed my friends that I would entrust this secret to you, and for a captain's commission I would not write it. "'Be satisfied, monsieur,' said Planchet. "'You shall see if confidence can be placed in me.' Mounted on an excellent horse, which he was to leave at the end of twenty leagues in order to take the post, Planchet set off at a gallop, his spirits a little depressed by the triple promise made him by the musketeers, but otherwise as light-hearted as possible. Bazin set out the next day for Tours, and was allowed eight days for performing his commission. The four friends, during the period of these two absences, had, as may well be supposed, the eye on the watch, the nose to the wind, and the ear on the hark. Their days were passed in endeavouring to catch all that was said, in observing the proceeding of the cardinal, and in looking out for all the couriers who arrived. More than once an involuntary trembling seized them when called upon for some unexpected service. They had, besides, to look constantly to their own proper safety. Milady was a phantom which, when it had once appeared to people, did not allow them to sleep very quietly. On the morning of the eighth day, Bazin, fresh as ever, and smiling, according to custom, entered the cabaret of the Parpeo as the four friends were sitting down to breakfast, saying, as had been agreed upon, "'Monsieur Aramis, the answer from your cousin.' The four friends exchanged a joyful glance. Half of the work was done. It is true, however, that it was the shorter and easier part. Aramis, blushing in spite of himself, took the letter, which was in a large, coarse hand, and not particular for its orthography. 
"'Good God!' cried he, laughing. "'I quite despair of my poor Michon. She will never write like Monsieur de Voiture.' "'What does you mean by Bour Michon?' said the Swiss, who was chatting with the four friends when the letter came. "'Oh, pardieu, less than nothing,' said Aramis. "'A charming little seamstress whom I love dearly, and from whose hand I requested a few lines as a sort of keepsake.' "'The devil!' said the Swiss. "'If she is as great a lady as her writing is large, you are a lucky fellow, comrade.' Aramis read the letter and passed it to Athos. "'See what she writes to me, Athos,' said he. Athos cast a glance over the epistle, and, to disperse all the suspicions that might have been created, read aloud, "'My cousin, my sister and I are skilful in interpreting dreams, and even entertain great fear of them. But of yours, it may be said, I hope, every dream is an illusion. Adieu! Take care of yourself, and act so that we may from time to time hear you spoken of.' marie Méchant. and what dream does she mean asked the dragoon who had approached during the reading yes what's the dream said the swiss well pardieu said aramis it was only this i had a dream and i related it to her yes yes said the swiss it's simple enough to tell a dream but i never dream you are very fortunate said Athos, rising. I wish I could say as much. Neffer! Enchanted that a man like Athos could envy him anything. Neffer, neffer! D'Artagnan, seeing Athos rise, did likewise, took his arm, and went out. Porthos and Aramis remained behind to encounter the jokes of the dragoon and the Swiss. As to Bazin, he went and lay down on a truss of straw, and as he had more imagination than the Swiss, he dreamed that Aramis, having become Pope, adorned his head with a cardinal's hat. But, as we have said, Bazin had not, by his fortunate return, removed more than a part of the uneasiness which weighed upon the four friends. The days of expectation are long, and D'Artagnan, in particular, would have wagered that the days were forty-four hours. He forgot the necessary slowness of navigation, he exaggerated to himself the power of Milady. He credited this woman, who appeared to him the equal of a demon, with agents as supernatural as herself. At the least noise he imagined himself about to be arrested, and that Planchet was being brought back to be confronted with himself and his friends. Still further, his confidence in the worthy Picard, at one time so great, diminished day by day. This anxiety became so great that it even extended to Aramis and Porthos. Athos alone remained unmoved, as if no danger hovered over him, and as if he breathed his customary atmosphere. On the sixteenth day, in particular, these signs were so strong in D'Artagnan and his two friends that they could not remain quiet in one place, and wandered about like ghosts on the road by which Planchet was expected. "'Really,' said Athos to them, you are not men but children to let a woman terrify you so and what does it amount to after all to be imprisoned well but we should be taken out of prison madame bonacieux was released to be decapitated why every day in the trenches we go cheerfully to expose ourselves to worse than that 
for a bullet may break a leg, and I am convinced a surgeon would give us more pain in cutting off a thigh than an executioner in cutting off a head. Wait quietly, then. In two hours, in four, in six hours at latest, Planchet will be here. He promised to be here, and I have very great faith in Planchet, who appears to me to be a very good lad. But if he does not come, said D'Artagnan, well, if he does not come, it will be because he has been delayed, that's all. He may have fallen from his horse. He may have cut a caper from the deck. He may have travelled so fast against the wind as to have brought on a violent catarrh. Eh, hey, gentlemen, let us reckon upon accidents. Life is a chaplet of little miseries which the philosopher counts with a smile. Be philosophers, as I am, gentlemen. Sit down at the table, and let us drink. Nothing makes the future look so bright as surveying it through a class of Chambertin. "'That's all very well,' replied D'Artagnan. "'But I am tired of fearing when I open a fresh bottle that the wine may come from the cellar of Milady.' "'You are very fastidious,' said Athos. "'Such a beautiful woman.' "'A woman of mark,' said Porthos, with his loud laugh. Athos started passed his hand over his brow to remove the drops of perspiration that burst forth, and rose in his turn with a nervous movement he could not repress. The day, however, passed away, and the evening came on slowly, but finally it came. The bars were filled with drinkers. Athos, who had pocketed his share of the diamond, seldom quit the Parpaillot. He had found in Monsieur de Boussigny, who, by the by, had given them a magnificent dinner, a party worthy of his company. They were playing together, as usual, when seven o'clock sounded. The patrol was heard passing to double the posts. At half-past seven the retreat was sounded. "'We are lost,' said D'Artagnan, in the ear of Athos. "'You mean to say we have lost,' said Athos, quietly, drawing four pistoles from his pocket, and throwing them upon the table. "'Come, gentlemen,' said he. "'They are beating the tattoo.' let us to bed and athos went out of the parpaillot followed by d'artagnan aramis came behind giving his arm to porthos aramis mumbled verses to himself and porthos from time to time pulled a hair or two from his moustache in sign of despair but all at once a shadow appeared in the darkness the outline of which was familiar to d'artagnan and a well-known voice said Monsieur, I have brought your cloak. It is chilly this evening. Planchet! cried D'Artagnan, beside himself with joy. Planchet! repeated Aramis and Porthos. Well, yes, Planchet, to be sure, said Athos. What is there so astonishing in that? He promised to be back by eight o'clock, and eight is striking. Bravo, Planchet, you are a lad of your word. And if ever you leave your master, I will promise you a place in my service. Oh, no, never, said Planchet. I will never leave Monsieur d'Artagnan. At the same time, d'Artagnan felt that Planchet slipped a note into his hand. D'Artagnan felt a strong inclination to embrace Planchet as he had embraced him on his departure, but he feared lest this mark of affection, bestowed upon his lackey in the open street, might appear extraordinary to passers-by, and he restrained himself. "'I have the note,' said he to Athos and his friends. "'That's well,' 
said Athos. Let us go home and read it. The note burned the hand of D'Artagnan. He wished to hasten their steps. But Athos took his arm and passed it under his own, and the young man was forced to regulate his pace by that of his friend. At length they reached the tent, lit a lamp, and while Planchet stood at the entrance that the four friends might not be surprised, D'Artagnan, with a trembling hand, broke the seal and opened the so anxiously expected letter. It contained half a line, in a hand perfectly British, and with a conciseness as perfectly Spartan. Thank you. Be easy. D'Artagnan translated this for the others. Athos took the letter from the hands of D'Artagnan, approached the lamp, set fire to the paper, and did not let go till it was reduced to a cinder. Then, calling Planchet, he said, Now, my lad, you may claim your seven hundred livres, but you did not run much risk from such a note as that. I am not to blame for having tried every means to compress it, said Planchet. Well, cried D'Artagnan, tell us about it. Dame, that's a long job, monsieur. You are right, Planchet, said Athos. Besides, the tattoo has been sounded, and we should be observed if we kept the light burning much longer than the others. So be it, said D'Artagnan. Go to bed, Planchet, and sleep soundly. My faith, monsieur, that will be the first time I have done so for sixteen days. And me too, said D'Artagnan. And me too, said Porthos. And me too, said Aramis. Well, if you will have the truth, and me too, said Athos. End of chapter. Chapter 49 of The Three Musketeers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 49 Fatality. Meantime, Milady, drunk with passion, roaring on the deck like a lioness that has been embarked, had been tempted to throw herself into the sea that she might regain the coast, for she could not get rid of the thought that she had been insulted by D'Artagnan, threatened by Athos, and that she had quit France without being revenged on them. This idea soon became so insupportable to her that at the risk of whatever terrible consequences might result to herself from it, she implored the captain to put her on shore. But the captain, eager to escape from his false position, placed between French and English cruisers, like the bat between the mice and the birds, was in great haste to regain England, and positively refused to obey what he took for a woman's caprice, promising his passenger, who had been particularly recommended to him by the cardinal, to land her, if the sea and the French permitted him, at one of the ports of Brittany, either at Lorient or Brest. But the wind was contrary, the sea bad. They tacked and kept off shore. Nine days after leaving the Charente, pale with fatigue and vexation, Milady saw only the blue coasts of Finisterre appear. She calculated that to cross this corner of France and return to the cardinal it would take her at least three days. At another day for landing, and that would make four. 
add these four to the nine others, that would be thirteen days lost, thirteen days during which so many important events might pass in London. She reflected likewise that the cardinal would be furious at her return, and consequently would be more disposed to listen to the complaints brought against her than to the accusations she brought against others. She allowed the vessel to pass Lorient and Brest without repeating her request to the captain, who, on his part, took care not to remind her of it. Milady therefore continued her voyage, and on the very day that Planchet embarked at Portsmouth for France, the messenger of his eminence entered the port in triumph. All the city was agitated by an extraordinary movement. Four large vessels, recently built, had just been launched. At the end of the jetty, his clothes richly laced with gold, glittering, as was customary with him, with diamonds and precious stones, his hat ornamented with a white feather which drooped upon his shoulder, Buckingham was seen surrounded by a staff almost as brilliant as himself. It was one of those rare and beautiful days in winter when England remembers that there is a sun. The star of day, pale but nevertheless still splendid, was setting in the horizon, glorifying at once the heavens and the sea with bands of fire, and casting upon the towers and the old houses of the city a last ray of gold which made the windows sparkle like the reflection of a conflagration. Breathing that sea-breeze, so much more invigorating and balsamic as the land is approached, contemplating all the power of those preparations she was commissioned to destroy, all the power of that army which she was to combat alone, she, a woman with a few bags of gold, Milady compared herself mentally to Judith, the terrible Jewess, when she penetrated the camp of the Assyrians, and beheld the enormous mass of chariots, horses, men, and arms, which a gesture of her hand was to dissipate like a cloud of smoke. They entered the roadstead, but as they drew near in order to cast anchor, a little cutter, looking like a coast-guard formidably armed, approached the merchant vessel, and dropped into the sea a boat which directed its course to the ladder. This boat contained an officer, a mate, and eight rowers. The officer alone went on board, where he was received with all the deference inspired by the uniform. The officer conversed a few instants with the captain, gave him several papers, of which he was the bearer, to read, and upon the order of the merchant captain, the whole crew of the vessel, both passengers and sailors, were called upon deck. When this species of summons was made, the officer inquired aloud the point of the brig's departure, its route, its landings, and to all these questions the captain replied without difficulty and without hesitation. Then the officer began to pass in review all the people, one after the other, and stopping when he came to Milady, surveyed her very closely, but without addressing a single word to her. He then returned to the captain, said a few words to him, and as if from that moment the vessel was under his command, he ordered a manoeuvre which the crew executed immediately. Then the vessel resumed its course, still escorted by the little cutter, which sailed side by side with it, menacing it with the mouths of its six cannon. The boat followed in the wake of the ship, a speck near the enormous mass. During the examination of Milady by the officer, as may well be imagined, 
Milady on her part was not less scrutinizing in her glances. But however great was the power of this woman with eyes of flame in reading the hearts of those whose secrets she wished to divine, she met this time with a countenance of such impassivity that no discovery followed her investigation. The officer who had stopped in front of her and studied her with so much care might have been twenty-five or twenty-six years of age. He was of pale complexion, with clear blue eyes, rather deeply set. His mouth, fine and well cut, remained motionless in its correct lines. His chin, strongly marked, denoted that strength of will which in the ordinary Britannic type denotes mostly nothing but obstinacy. A brow a little receding, as is proper for poets, enthusiasts, and soldiers, was scarcely shaded by short, thin hair which, like the beard which covered the lower part of his face, was of a beautiful, deep chestnut color. When they entered the port it was already night. The fog increased the darkness, and formed round the stern lights and lanterns of the jetty, a circle like that which surrounds the moon when the weather threatens to become rainy. The air they breathed was heavy, damp, and cold. Milady, that woman so courageous and firm, shivered in spite of herself. The officer desired to have Milady's packages pointed out to him, and ordered them to be placed in the boat. When this operation was complete, he invited her to descend by offering her his hand. Milady looked at this man and hesitated. "'Who are you, sir?' asked she. "'Who has the kindness to trouble yourself so particularly on my account?' "'You may perceive, madame, by my uniform, that I am an officer in the English Navy,' replied the young man. "'But is it the custom for the officers in the English Navy to place themselves at the service of their female compatriots when they land in the port of Great Britain, and carry their gallantry so far as to conduct them ashore?' "'Yes, madame, it is the custom, not from gallantry but prudence, that in time of war foreigners should be conducted to particular hotels, in order that they may remain under the eye of the government until full information can be obtained about them.' These words were pronounced with the most exact politeness and the most perfect calmness. Nevertheless, they had not the power of convincing the lady. "'But I am not a foreigner, sir.' said she, with an accent as pure as ever was heard between Portsmouth and Manchester. "'My name is Lady Cleric, and this measure—this measure is general, madame, and you will seek in vain to evade it.' "'I will follow you, then, sir.' Accepting the hand of the officer, she began the descent of the ladder, at the foot of which the boat waited. The officer followed her. A large cloak was spread at the stern. The officer requested her to sit down upon this cloak, and placed himself beside her. "'Row,' said he to the sailors. The eight oars fell at once into the sea, making but a single sound, giving but a single stroke, and the boat seemed to fly over the surface of the water. In five minutes they gained the land. The officer leaped to the pier, and offered his hand to Milady. A carriage was in waiting. "'Is this carriage for us?' asked Milady. "'Yes, madame,' replied the officer. "'The hotel, then, is far away?' "'At the other end of the town.' "'Very well,' 
said Milady, and she resolutely entered the carriage. The officer saw that the baggage was fastened carefully behind the carriage, and this operation ended, he took his place beside Milady and shut the door. Immediately, without any order being given or his place of destination indicated, the coachman set off at a rapid pace and plunged into the streets of the city. So strange a reception naturally gave Milady ample matter for reflection. So seeing that the young officer did not seem at all disposed for conversation, she reclined in her corner of the carriage, and one after the other passed in review all the surmises which presented themselves to her mind. At the end of a quarter of an hour, however, surprised at the length of the journey, she leaned forward toward the door to see whither she was being conducted. Houses were no longer to be seen. Trees appeared in the darkness like great black phantoms chasing one another. Milady shuddered. "'But we are no longer in the city, sir,' said she. The young officer preserved silence. "'I beg you to understand, sir. I will go no farther unless you tell me whither you are taking me.' This threat brought no reply. "'Oh, this is too much!' cried Milady. "'Help! Help!' No voice replied to hers. The carriage continued to roll on with rapidity. The officer seemed a statue. Milady looked at the officer with one of those terrible expressions peculiar to her countenance, and which so rarely failed of their effect. Anger made her eyes flash in the darkness. The young man remained immovable. Milady tried to open the door in order to throw herself out. "'Take care, madame,' said the young man coolly. "'You will kill yourself in jumping.' Milady reseated herself, foaming. The officer leaned forward, looked at her in his turn, and appeared surprised to see that face, just before so beautiful, distorted with passion and almost hideous. The artful creature at once comprehended that she was injuring herself by allowing him thus to read her soul. She collected her features, and in a complaining voice said, "'In the name of heaven, sir, tell me, if it is to you, if it is to your government, if it is to an enemy I am to attribute the violence that is done me?' "'No violence will be offered to you, madame.' and what happens to you is the result of a very simple measure which we are obliged to adopt with all who land in England. Then you don't know me, sir? It is the first time I have had the honour of seeing you. And on your honour you have no cause of hatred against me? None, I swear to you. There was so much serenity, coolness, mildness even, in the voice of the young man that Milady felt reassured. At length, after a journey of nearly an hour, the carriage stopped before an iron gate, which closed an avenue leading to a castle severe in form, massive and isolated. Then, as the wheels rolled over a fine gravel, Milady could hear a vast roaring, which she at once recognized as the noise of the sea dashing against some steep cliff. The carriage passed under two arched gateways, and at length stopped in a court, large, dark and square. Almost immediately the door of the carriage was opened, the young man sprang lightly out and presented his hand to Milady, who leaned upon it, and in her turn alighted with tolerable calmness. 
"'Still, then, I am a prisoner?' said Milady, looking around her, and bringing back her eyes with a most gracious smile to the young officer. "'But I feel assured it will not be for long,' added she. "'My own conscience and your politeness, sir, are the guarantees of that.' However flattering this compliment, the officer made no reply, but drawing from his belt a little silver whistle, such as boatswains use in ships of war, he whistled three times, with three different modulations. Immediately several men appeared, who unharnessed the smoking horses and put the carriage into a coach-house. Then the officer, with the same calm politeness, invited his prisoner to enter the house. She, with a still smiling countenance, took his arm and passed with him under a low-arched door, which by a vaulted passage, lighted only at the farther end, led to a stone staircase around an angle of stone. They then came to a massive door, which, after the introduction into the lock of a key which the young man carried with him, turned heavily upon its hinges, and disclosed the chamber destined for Milady. With a single glance the prisoner took in the apartment in its minutest details. It was a chamber whose furniture was at once appropriate for a prisoner or a free man, and yet bars at the windows and outside bolts at the door decided the question in favour of the prison. In an instant all the strength of mind of this creature, though drawn from the most vigorous sources, abandoned her. She sank into a large easy-chair, with her arms crossed, her head lowered, and expecting every instant to see a judge enter to interrogate her. But no one entered except two or three marines, who brought her trunks and packages, deposited them in a corner, and retired without speaking. The officer superintended all these details with the same calmness Milady had constantly seen in him, never pronouncing a word himself, and making himself obeyed by a gesture of his hand or a sound of his whistle. It might have been said that between this man and his inferiors spoken language did not exist, or had become useless. At length Milady could hold out no longer, she broke the silence. "'In the name of heaven, sir!' cried she. "'What means all that is passing? Put an end to my doubts. I have courage enough for any danger I can foresee, for every misfortune which I understand. Where am I, and why am I here? If I am free, why these bars and these doors? If I am a prisoner, what crime have I committed?' "'You are here in the apartment destined for you, madame. I received orders to go and take charge of you on the sea, and to conduct you to this castle. This order, I believe, I have accomplished with all the exactness of a soldier, but also with the courtesy of a gentleman. There terminates, at least to the present moment, the duty I had to fulfill toward you. The rest concerns another person.' "'And who is that other person?' asked Milady warmly. "'Can you not tell me his name?' At the moment a great jingling of spurs was heard on the stairs. Some voices passed and faded away, and the sound of a single footstep approached the door. "'That person is here, madame,' said the officer, leaving the entrance open, and drawing himself up in an attitude of respect. At the same time the door opened. A man appeared on the threshold. He was without a hat, carried a sword, and flourished a handkerchief in his hand. 
The lady thought she recognized this shadow in the gloom. She supported herself with one hand upon the arm of the chair, and advanced her head as if to meet a certainty. The stranger advanced slowly, and as he advanced, after entering into the circle of light projected by the lamp, Milady involuntarily drew back. Then, when she had no longer any doubt, she cried in a state of stupor, "'What, my brother, is it you?' "'Yes, fair lady,' replied Lord de Winter, making a bow, half courteous, half ironical, "'it is I, myself.' "'But this castle, then?' "'Is mine.' "'This chamber?' "'Is yours.' "'I am, then, your prisoner?' "'Nearly so.' "'But this is a frightful abuse of power.' "'No high-sounding words. Let us sit down and chat quietly, as brother and sister ought to do.' Then, turning toward the door, and seeing that the young officer was waiting for his last orders, he said, "'All is well. I thank you. Now leave us alone, Mr. Felton.' End of chapter Chapter Fifty of the Three Musketeers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Chapter Fifty Chat Between Brother and Sister. During the time which Lord de Winter took to shut the door, close a shutter, and draw a chair near to his sister-in-law's fantoya, Milady, anxiously thoughtful, plunged her glance into the depths of possibility, and discovered all the plan, of which she could not even obtain a glance as long as she was ignorant into whose hand she had fallen. She knew her brother-in-law to be a worthy gentleman, a bold hunter, an intrepid player, enterprising with women, but by no means remarkable for his skill and intrigues. How had he discovered her arrival, and caused her to be seized? Why did he detain her? Athos had dropped some words which proved that the conversation she had with the cardinal had fallen unto outside ears, but she could not suppose that he had dug a countermine so promptly and so boldly. She rather feared that her preceding operations in England might have been discovered. Buckingham might have guessed that it was she who had cut off the two studs, and avenge himself for that little treachery. But Buckingham was incapable of going to any excess against a woman, particularly if that woman was supposed to have acted from a feeling of jealousy. This supposition appeared to her most reasonable. It seemed to her that they wanted to revenge the past, and not to anticipate the future. At all events, she congratulated herself upon having fallen into the hands of her brother-in-law, with whom she reckoned she could deal very easily, rather than into the hands of an acknowledged and intelligent enemy. "'Yes, let us chat, brother,' said she, with a kind of cheerfulness, decided as she was to draw from the conversation, in spite of all the dissimulation Lord de Winter could bring, the revelations of which she stood in need to regulate her future conduct. "'You have, then, decided to come to England again,' said Lord de Winter, 
in spite of the resolutions you so often expressed in Paris, never to set your feet on British ground? Milady replied to this question by another question. To begin with, tell me, said she, how have you watched me so closely as to be aware beforehand not only of my arrival, but even of the day, the hour, and the port at which I should arrive? Lord de Winter adopted the same tactics as Milady, thinking that as his sister-in-law employed them they must be the best. "'But tell me, my dear sister,' replied he, "'what makes you come to England?' "'I come to see you,' replied Milady, without knowing how much she aggravated by this reply the suspicions to which D'Artagnan's letter had given birth in the mind of her brother-in-law, and only desiring to gain the good will of her auditor by a falsehood. "'Ah, to see me!' said de winter cunningly to be sure to see you what is there astonishing in that and you had no other object in coming to england but to see me no so it was for me alone you have taken the trouble to cross the channel for you alone the deuce <laughs> what tenderness my sister but am i not your nearest relative demanded Milady, with a tone of the most touching ingenuousness. "'And my only heir, are you not?' said Lord de Winter in his turn, fixing his eyes on those of Milady. Whatever command she had over herself, Milady could not help starting, and as in pronouncing the last words Lord de Winter placed his hand upon the arm of his sister, this start did not escape him. In fact, the blow was direct and severe. The first idea that occurred to Milady's mind was that she had been betrayed by Kitty, and that she had recounted to the Baron the selfish aversion toward himself of which she had imprudently allowed some marks to escape before her servant. She also recollected the furious and imprudent attack she had made upon D'Artagnan when he spared the life of her brother. "'I do not understand, my lord.' said she, in order to gain time and make her adversary speak out. "'What do you mean to say? Is there any secret meaning concealed beneath your words?' "'Oh, my God, no!' said Lord de Winter, with apparent good-nature. "'You wish to see me, and you come to England. I learn this desire, or rather I suspect that you feel it, and in order to spare you all the annoyances of a nocturnal arrival in a port, and all the fatigues of landing, I send one of my officers to meet you, I place a carriage at his orders, and he brings you hither to this castle, of which I am governor, whither I come every day, and where, in order to satisfy our mutual desire of seeing each other, I have prepared you a chamber.' What is there more astonishing in all that I have said to you than in what you have told me? No, what I think astonishing is that you should expect my coming. And yet that is the most simple thing in the world, my dear sister. Have you not observed that the captain of your little vessel, on entering the roadstead, sent forward, in order to obtain permission to enter the port, a little boat bearing his log-book and the register of his voyagers? I am commandant of the port. They brought me that book. I recognized your name in it. My heart told me what your mouth has just confirmed. That is to say, 
with what view you have exposed yourself to the dangers of a sea so perilous or at least so troublesome at this moment and i sent my cutter to meet you you know the rest milady knew that lord de winter lied and she was the more alarmed my brother continued she was not that my lord buckingham whom i saw on the jetty this evening as we arrived himself ah i can understand how the sight of him struck you replied lord de winter you came from a country where he must be very much talked of and i know that his armaments against france greatly engaged the attention of your friend the cardinal my friend the cardinal cried milady seeing that on this point as on the other lord de winter seemed well instructed is he not your friend replied the baron negligently ah pardon i thought so but we will return to my lord duke presently let us not depart from our sentimental turn our conversation has taken you came you say to see me yes well i reply that you shall be served to the height of your wishes and that we shall see each other every day am i then to remain here eternally demanded milady with a certain terror do you find yourself badly lodged sister demand anything you want and i will hasten to have you furnished with it but i have neither my women nor my servants you shall have all madam tell me on what footing your household was established by your first husband and although i am only your brother-in-law i will arrange one similar my first husband cried milady looking at lord de winter with eyes almost starting from their sockets yes your french husband i don't speak of my brother if you have forgotten as he is still living i can write to him and he will send me information on the subject a cold sweat burst from the brow of milady you jest said she in a hollow voice do i look so asked the baron rising and going a step backward or rather you insult me continued she pressing with her stiffened hands the two arms of her easy-chair and raising herself upon her wrists i insult you said lord de winter with contempt in truth madam do you think that can be possible indeed sir said milady you must either be drunk or mad leave the room and send me a woman women are very indiscreet my sister cannot i serve you as a waiting-maid by that means all our secrets will remain in the family insolent cried milady and as if acted upon by a spring she bounded toward the baron who awaited her attack with his arms crossed but nevertheless with one hand on the hilt of his sword come said he i know you are accustomed to assassinate people but i warn you i shall defend myself even against you you are right said milady you have all the appearance of being cowardly enough to lift your hand against a woman perhaps so and i have an excuse for mine would not be the first hand of a man that has been placed upon you i imagine and the baron pointed with a slow and accusing gesture to the left shoulder of milady which he almost touched with his finger 
The lady uttered a deep inward shriek, and retreated to a corner of the room like a panther which crouches for a spring. "'Oh, growl as much as you please!' cried Lord de Winter. "'But don't try to bite, for I warn you that it would be to your disadvantage. There are here no procurators who regulate successions beforehand. There is no knight-errant to come and seek a quarrel with me on account of the fair lady I detain a prisoner. But I have judges quite ready, who will quickly dispose of a woman so shameless as to glide, a bigamist, into the bed of Lord de Winter, my brother. And these judges, I warn you, will soon send you to an executioner who will make both your shoulders alike." The eyes of Milady darted such flashes that although he was a man and armed before an unarmed woman, he felt the chill of fear glide through his whole frame. However, he continued all the same, but with increased warmth. Yes, I can very well understand that after having inherited the fortune of my brother, it would be very agreeable to you to be my heir likewise. But know beforehand, if you kill me or cause me to be killed, my precautions are taken. Not a penny of what I possess will pass into your hands. Were you not already rich enough, you who possess nearly a million? And could you not stop your fatal career, if you did not do evil for the infinite and supreme joy of doing it? Oh, be assured, if the memory of my brother were not sacred to me, you should rot in a state dungeon or satisfy the curiosity of sailors at Tyburn. I will be silent, but you must endure your captivity quietly. In fifteen or twenty days I shall set out for La Rochelle with the army. But on the eve of my departure a vessel which I shall see depart will take you hence and convey you to our colonies in the south, and be assured that you shall be accompanied by one who will blow your brains out at the first attempt you make to return to England or the continent." Milady listened with an attention that dilated her inflamed eyes. "'Yes, at present,' continued Lord de Winter, "'you will remain in this castle. The walls are thick, the doors strong, and the bars solid. Besides, your window opens immediately over the sea. The men of my crew, who are devoted to me for life and death, mount guard around this apartment, and watch all the passages that lead to the courtyard.' Even if you gain the yard, there would still be three iron gates for you to pass. The order is positive. A step, a gesture, a word, on your part, denoting an effort to escape, and you are to be fired upon. If they kill you, English justice will be under an obligation to me for having saved it trouble. Ha! I see your features regain their calmness, your countenance recovers its assurance. You are saying to yourself, fifteen days, twenty days, bah, I have an inventive mind, before that is expired some idea will occur to me. I have an infernal spirit. I shall meet with a victim. Before fifteen days are gone by I shall be away from here. Ah, try it. Milady, finding her thoughts betrayed, dug her nails into her flesh to subdue every emotion that might give to her face any expression except agony. Lord de Winter continued. The officer who commands here in my absence you have already seen, and therefore know him. He knows how, as you must have observed, to obey an order, 
for you did not, I am sure, come from Portsmouth hither without endeavouring to make him speak. What do you say of him? Could a statue of marble have been more impassive and more mute? You have already tried the power of your seductions upon many men, and unfortunately you have always succeeded. But I give you leave to try them upon this one. Pardieu, if you succeed with him, I pronounce you the demon himself. He went toward the door and opened it hastily. Call, Mr. Felton, said he. Wait a minute longer, and I will introduce him to you. There followed between these two personages strange silence, during which the sound of a slow and regular step was heard approaching. Shortly a human form appeared in the shade of the corridor, and the young lieutenant, with whom we are already acquainted, stopped at the threshold to receive the orders of the baron. "'Come in, my dear John,' said Lord de Winter. "'Come in, and shut the door.' The young officer entered. "'Now,' said the baron, "'look at this woman. She is young. She is beautiful. She possesses all earthly seductions. Well,' She is a monster, who at twenty-five years of age has been guilty of as many crimes as you could read of in a year in the archives of our tribunals. Her voice prejudices her hearers in her favour. Her beauty serves as a bait to her victims. Her body even pays what she promises. I must do her that justice. She will try to seduce you. Perhaps she will try to kill you. I have extricated you from misery, Felton. I have caused you to be named lieutenant. I once saved your life, you know on what occasion. I am for you not only a protector, but a friend, not only a benefactor, but a father. This woman has come back again into England for the purpose of conspiring against my life. I hold this serpent in my hands. Well, I call you and say to you, Friend Felton, John, my child, guard me and more particularly guard yourself against this woman. Swear, by your hopes of salvation, to keep her safely for the chastisement she has merited. John Felton, I trust your word. John Felton, I put faith in your loyalty. My lord, said the young officer, summoning to his mild countenance all the hatred he could find in his heart, my lord, I swear all shall be done as you desire. Milady received this look like a resigned victim. It was impossible to imagine a more submissive or a more mild expression than that which prevailed on her beautiful countenance. Lord de Winter himself could scarcely recognize the tigress who, a minute before, prepared apparently for a fight. "'She is not to leave this chamber, understand, John,' continued the baron. "'She is to correspond with nobody.' She is to speak to no one but you, if you will do her the honour to address a word to her. That is sufficient, my lord. I have sworn. And now, madam, try to make your peace with God, for you are judged by men. Milady let her head sink, as if crushed by this sentence. Lord de Winter went out, making a sign to Felton, who followed him, shutting the door after him. One instant after, the heavy step of a marine who served as sentinel was heard in the corridor, his axe in his girdle and his musket on his shoulder. Milady remained for some minutes in the same position, for she thought they might perhaps be examining her through the keyhole. She then slowly raised her head, 
which had resumed its formidable expression of menace and defiance, ran to the door to listen, looked out of her window, and returning to bury herself again in her large armchair, she reflected. End of chapter Chapter 51 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 51 Officer Meanwhile the cardinal looked anxiously for news from England, but no news arrived that was not annoying and threatening. Although La Rochelle was invested, however certain success might appear, thanks to the precautions taken, and above all to the dyke, which prevented the entrance of any vessel into the besieged city, the blockade might last a long time yet. This was a great affront to the king's army, and a great inconvenience to the cardinal, who had no longer, it is true, to embroil Louis the Thirteenth with Anne of Austria, for that affair was over. But he had to adjust matters for Monsieur de Bassompierre, who was embroiled with the Duc d'Angoulême. As to Monsieur, who had begun the siege, he left to the cardinal the task of finishing it. The city, notwithstanding the incredible perseverance of its mayor, had attempted a sort of mutiny for a surrender, the mayor had hanged the mutineers. This execution quieted the ill-disposed, who resolved to allow themselves to die of hunger, this death always appearing to them more slow and less sure than strangulation. On their side, from time to time, the besiegers took the messengers which the Rochelais sent to Buckingham, or the spies which Buckingham sent to the Rochelais. In one case or the other, the trial was soon over. The cardinal pronounced the single word, hanged the king was invited to come and see the hanging he came languidly placing himself in a good situation to see all the details this amused him sometimes a little and made him endure the siege with patience but it did not prevent his getting very tired or from talking at every moment of returning to paris so that if the messengers and the spies had failed his eminence notwithstanding all his inventiveness would have found himself much embarrassed. Nevertheless, time passed on, and the Rochelais did not surrender. The last spy that was taken was the bearer of a letter. This letter told Buckingham that the city was at an extremity, but instead of adding, If your succor does not arrive within fifteen days we will surrender, it added, quite simply, If your succor comes not within fifteen days, we shall all be dead with hunger when it comes. The Rochelais, then, had no hope but in Buckingham. Buckingham was their messiah. It was evident that if they one day learned positively that they must not count on Buckingham, their courage would fail with their hope. The cardinal looked, then, with great impatience for the news from England, which would announce to him that Buckingham would not come. The question of carrying the city by assault, though often debated in the council of the king, had always been rejected. In the first place, La Rochelle appeared impregnable. Then the cardinal, whatever he said, very well knew that the horror of bloodshed in this encounter, in which Frenchmen would combat against Frenchmen, 
was a retrograde movement of sixty years impressed upon his policy, and the cardinal was at that period what we now call a man of progress. In fact, the sack of La Rochelle, and the assassination of three of four thousand Huguenots who allowed themselves to be killed, would resemble too closely, in 1628, the massacre of St. Bartholomew in 1572. And then, above all this, this extreme measure, which was not at all repugnant to the king, good Catholic as he was, always fell before this argument of the besieging generals. La Rochelle is impregnable, except to famine. The cardinal could not drive from his mind the fear he entertained of his terrible emissary, for he comprehended the strange qualities of this woman, sometimes a serpent, sometimes a lion. Had she betrayed him? Was she dead? He knew her well enough in all cases to know that, whether acting for or against him, as a friend or an enemy, she would not remain motionless without great impediments. But whence did these impediments arise? That was what he could not know. And yet he reckoned, and with reason, on my lady. He had divined in the past of this woman terrible things which his red mantle alone could cover, and he felt, from one cause or another, that this woman was his own, as she could look to no other but himself for a support superior to the danger which threatened her. He resolved, then, to carry on the war alone, and to look for no success foreign to himself, but as we look for a fortunate chance. He continued to press the raising of the famous dyke which was to starve La Rochelle. Meanwhile he cast his eyes over that unfortunate city, which contained so much deep misery and so many heroic virtues, and recalling the saying of Louis the Eleventh, his political predecessor, as he himself was the predecessor of Robespierre, he repeated this maxim of Tristan's gossip, divide in order to reign. Henry the Fourth, when besieging Paris, had loaves and provisions thrown over the walls. The cardinal had little notes thrown over in which he represented to the Rochelais how unjust, selfish, and barbarous was the conduct of their leaders. These leaders had corn in abundance, and would not let them partake of it. They adopted as a maxim, for they too had maxims, that it was of very little consequence that women, children, and old men should die, so long as the men who were to defend the walls remained strong and healthy. Up to that time, whether from devotedness or from want of power to act against it, this maxim, without being generally adopted, nevertheless passed from theory into practice, but the notes did it injury. The notes reminded the men that the children, women, and old men whom they allowed to die were their sons, their wives, and their fathers, and that it would be more just for everyone to be reduced to the common misery, in order that equal conditions should give birth to unanimous resolutions. These notes had all the effect that he who wrote them could expect, in that they induced a great number of the inhabitants to open private negotiations with the royal army. But at the moment when the cardinal saw his means already bearing fruit, and applauded himself for having put it in action, an inhabitant of La Rochelle who had contrived to pass the royal lines, God knows how, such was the watchfulness of Bassompierre, Schomberg, and the Duc d'Angelême, themselves watched over by the cardinal, an inhabitant of La Rochelle, we say, entered the city, coming from Portsmouth, 
and saying that he had seen a magnificent fleet ready to sail within eight days. Still further, Buckingham announced to the mayor that at length the Great League was about to declare itself against France, and that the kingdom would be at once invaded by the English, Imperial, and Spanish armies. This letter was read publicly in all parts of the city. Copies were put up at the corners of the streets, and even they who had begun to open negotiations interrupted them, being resolved to await the succour so pompously announced. This unexpected circumstance brought back Richelieu's former anxiety, and forced him, in spite of himself, once more to turn his eyes to the other side of the sea. During this time, exempt from the anxiety of its only and true chief, the royal army led a joyous life, neither provisions nor money being wanting in the camp. All the corps rivaled one another in audacity and gaiety. To take spies and hang them, to make hazardous expeditions upon the dike or the sea, to imagine wild plans, and to execute them coolly. Such were the pastimes which made the army find these days short, which were not only so long to the Rochelet, a prey to famine and anxiety, but even to the cardinal, who blockaded them so closely. Sometimes when the cardinal, always on horseback, like the lowest gendarme of the army, cast a pensive glance over those works, so slowly keeping pace with his wishes, which the engineers, brought from all the corners of France, were executing under his orders, if he met a musketeer of the company of Treville, he drew near and looked at him in a peculiar manner, and not recognizing in him one of our four companions, he turned his penetrating look and profound thoughts in another direction. One day, when oppressed with a mortal weariness of mind, without hope in the negotiations with the city, without news from England, the cardinal went out, without any other aim than to be out of doors, and accompanied only by Cahusac and La Houdinière, strolled along the beach. Mingling the immensity of his dreams with the immensity of the ocean, he came, his horse going at a foot's pace, to a hill from the top of which he perceived behind a hedge, reclining on the sand and catching in its passage one of those rays of the sun so rare at this period of the year, seven men surrounded by empty bottles. Four of these men were our musketeers, preparing to listen to a letter one of them had just received. This letter was so important that it made them forsake their cards and their dice on the drumhead. The other three were occupied in opening an enormous flagon of colicure wine. These were the lackeys of these gentlemen. The cardinal was, as we have said, in very low spirits, and nothing when he was in that state of mind increased his depression so much as gaiety in others. Besides, he had another strange fancy, which was always to believe that the causes of his sadness created the gaiety of others. Making a sign to La Houdinière and Cahusac to stop, he alighted from his horse, and went toward the suspected merry companions, hoping, by means of the sand which deadened the sound of his steps, and of the hedge which concealed his approach, to catch some words of this conversation which appeared so interesting. At ten paces from the hedge he recognized the talkative Gascon, and as he had already perceived that these men were musketeers, he did not doubt that the three others were those called the inseparables, that is to say, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. 
it may be supposed that his desire to hear the conversation was augmented by this discovery. His eyes took a strange expression, and with the step of a tiger-cat he advanced toward the hedge. But he had not been able to catch more than a few vague syllables without any positive sense, when a sonorous and short cry made him start, and attracted the attention of the musketeers. "'Officer!' cried Grimaud. "'You are speaking, you scoundrel!' said Athos, rising upon his elbow and transfixing Grimaud with his flaming look. Grimaud, therefore, added nothing to his speech, but contented himself with pointing his index finger in the direction of the hedge, announcing by this gesture the cardinal and his escort. With a single bound the musketeers were on their feet, and saluted with respect. The cardinal seemed furious. "'It appears that messieurs the musketeers keep guard,' said he. "'Are the English expected by land, or do the musketeers consider themselves superior officers?' "'Monseigneur,' replied Athos, for amid the general fright he alone had preserved the noble calmness and coolness that never forsook him. "'Monseigneur, the musketeers, when they are not on duty, or when their duty is over, drink and play at dice, and they are certainly superior officers to their lackeys.' "'Lackeys,' grumbled the cardinal, "'lackeys who have the order to warn their masters when anyone passes are not lackeys. They are sentinels.' "'Your eminence may perceive that if we had not taken this precaution, we should have been exposed to allowing you to pass without presenting you our respects, or offering you our thanks for the favour you have done us in uniting us. D'Artagnan,' continued Athos, "'you, who but lately were so anxious for such an opportunity for expressing your gratitude to Monseigneur, here it is. Avail yourself of it.' These words were pronounced with that imperturbable phlegm which distinguished Athos in the hour of danger, and with that excessive politeness which made of him, at certain moments, a king more majestic than kings by birth. D'Artagnan came forward and stammered out a few words of gratitude, which soon expired under the gloomy looks of the cardinal. "'It does not signify, gentlemen,' continued the cardinal, without appearing to be in the least swerved from his first intention by the diversion which Athos had started. "'It does not signify, gentlemen. I do not like to have simple soldiers, because they have the advantage of serving in a privileged corps, thus to play the great lords. Discipline is the same for them as for everybody else.' Athos allowed the cardinal to finish his sentence completely, and bowed in sight of assent. Then he resumed in his turn. Discipline, Monseigneur, has, I hope, in no way been forgotten by us. We are not on duty, and we believe that not being on duty we were at liberty to dispose of our time as we pleased. If we are so fortunate as to have some particular duty to perform for your eminence, we are ready to obey you. Your eminence may perceive, continued Athos, knitting his brow, for this sort of investigation began to annoy him, that we have not come out without our arms. And he showed the cardinal with his finger the four muskets piled near the drum on which were the cards and dice. "'Your eminence may believe,' added D'Artagnan, "'that we would have come to meet you if we could have supposed it was Monseigneur coming toward us with so few attendants.' The cardinal bit his moustache and even his lips a little.' 
Do you know what you look like, altogether, as you are armed and guarded by your lackeys? said the cardinal. You look like four conspirators. Oh, as to that, monseigneur, it is true, said Athos. We do conspire, as your eminence might have seen the other morning. Only we conspire against the Rochelet. Ah, you gentlemen of policy, replied the cardinal, knitting his brow in his turn. The secret of many unknown things might perhaps be found in your brains, if we could read them as you read that letter which you concealed as soon as you saw me coming. The colour mounted to the face of Athos, and he made a step toward his eminence. One might think you really suspected us, Monseigneur, and we were undergoing a real interrogatory. If it be so, we trust your eminence will deign to explain yourself, and we should then at least be acquainted with our real position. And if it were an interrogatory, replied the cardinal, others besides you have undergone such, Monsieur Athos, and have replied thereto. Thus I have told your eminence that you had but to question us, and we are ready to reply. What was that letter you were about to read, Monsieur Aramis, and which you so promptly concealed? A woman's letter, Monseigneur. Ah, yes, I see, said the cardinal. We must be discreet with this sort of letters. But nevertheless we may show them to a confessor, and you know I have taken orders. Monseigneur, said Athos, with a calmness the more terrible because he risked his head in making this reply. The letter is a woman's letter, but it is neither signed Marianne de Lorme nor Madame d'Aguillon. The cardinal became pale as death. Lightning darted from his eyes. He turned round as if to give an order to Cahusac and Houdinière. Athos saw the movement. He made a step toward the muskets, upon which the other three friends had fixed their eyes, like men ill-disposed to allow themselves to be taken. The cardinalists were three. The musketeers, lackeys included, were seven. He judged that the match would be so much the less equal if Athos and his companions were really plotting, and by one of those rapid turns which he always had at command, all his anger faded away into a smile. "'Well, well,' said he, you are brave young men, proud in daylight, faithful in darkness. We can find no fault with you for watching over yourselves, when you watch so carefully over others. Gentlemen, I have not forgotten the night in which you served me as an escort to the Red Dovecote. If there were any danger to be apprehended on the road I am going, I would request you to accompany me. But as there is none, remain where you are. Finish your bottles, your game, and your letter. Adieu, gentlemen. And remounting his horse, which Cahusac led to him, he saluted them with his hand and rode away. The four young men, standing and motionless, followed him with their eyes without speaking a single word until he had disappeared. Then they looked at one another. The countenances of all gave evidence of terror for notwithstanding the friendly adieu of his eminence, they plainly perceived that the cardinal went away with rage in his heart. Athos alone smiled, with a self-possessed, disdainful smile. When the cardinal was out of hearing and sight, "'That Grimaud kept bad watch!' cried Porthos, who had a great inclination to vent his ill-humour on somebody. 
Grimaud was about to reply to excuse himself. Athos lifted his finger, and Grimaud was silent. "'Would you have given up the letter, Aramis?' said D'Artagnan. "'Aye,' said Aramis, in his most flute-like tone, "'I had made up my mind. If he had insisted upon the letter being given up to him, I would have presented the letter to him with one hand, and with the other I would have run my sword through his body.' "'I expected as much,' said Athos, "'and that was why I threw myself between you and him.' Indeed, this man is very much to blame for talking thus to other men. One would say he had never had to do with any but women and children. My dear Athos, I admire you, but nevertheless we were in the wrong, after all. How in the wrong? said Athos. Whose, then, is the air we breathe? Whose is the ocean upon which we look? Whose is the sand upon which we were reclining? Whose is that letter of your mistress? Do these belong to the cardinal? Upon my honour, this man fancies the world belongs to him. There you stood, stammering, stupefied, annihilated. One might have supposed the Bastille appeared before you, and that the gigantic Medusa had converted you into stone. Is being in love conspiring? You are in love with a woman whom the cardinal has caused to be shut up and you wish to get her out of the hands of the cardinal. That's a match you are playing with his eminence. This letter is your game. Why should you expose your game to your adversary? That is never done. Let him find it out if he can. We can find out his. Well, that's all very sensible, Athos, said D'Artagnan. In that case, let there be no more question of what's past and let Aramis resume the letter from his cousin where the cardinal interrupted him. Aramis drew the letter from his pocket. The three friends surrounded him, and the three lackeys grouped themselves again near the wine-jar. "'You had only read a line or two, said D'Artagnan. "'Read the letter again from the commencement.' "'Willingly,' said Aramis. "'My dear cousin, I think I shall make up my mind to set out for Bethune.' where my sister has placed our little servant in the convent of the Carmelites. This poor child is quite resigned, as she knows she cannot live elsewhere without the salvation of her soul being in danger. Nevertheless, if the affairs of our family are arranged, as we hope they will be, I believe she will run the risk of being damned, and will return to those she regrets, particularly as she knows they are always thinking of her." Meanwhile, she is not very wretched. What she most desires is a letter from her intended. I know that such viands pass with difficulty through convent gratings, but after all, as I have given you proofs, my dear cousin, I am not unskilled in such affairs, and I will take charge of the commission. My sister thanks you for your good and eternal remembrance. She has experienced much anxiety but she is now at length a little reassured, having sent her secretary away in order that nothing may happen unexpectedly. Adieu, my dear cousin. Tell us news of yourself as often as you can, that is to say, as often as you can, with safety. I embrace you. Marie Michon. Oh, what do I not owe you, Aramis? said D'Artagnan. Dear Constance, I have at length, then, intelligence of you. 
She lives. She is in safety in a convent. She is at Bethune. Where is Bethune, Athos? Why, upon the frontiers of Atois and of Flanders. The siege once over, we shall be able to make a tour in that direction. And that will not be long, it is to be hoped, said Porthos. For they have this morning hanged a spy who confessed that the Rochelais were reduced to the leather of their shoes. Supposing that having eaten the leather they eat the soles, I cannot see much that is left unless they eat one another. Poor fools, said Athos, emptying a glass of excellent Bordeaux wine which, without having at that period the reputation it now enjoys, merited it no less. Poor fools! as if the Catholic religion were not the most advantageous and the most agreeable of all religions. All the same, resumed he, after having clicked his tongue against his palate, they are brave fellows. But what the devil are you about, Aramis? continued Athos. Why, you are squeezing that letter into your pocket. Yes, said D'Artagnan, Athos is right. It must be burned. And yet, if we burn it, who knows whether Monsieur Cardinal has not a secret to interrogate ashes? He must have one, said Athos. What will you do with the letter, then? asked Porthos. Come here, Grimaud, said Athos. Grimaud rose and obeyed. As a punishment for having spoken without permission, my friend, you will please to eat this piece of paper. Then, to recompense you for the service you will have rendered us, you shall afterward drink this glass of wine. First, here is the letter. Eat heartily. Grimaud smiled, and with his eyes fixed upon the glass which Athos held in his hand, he ground the paper well between his teeth, and then swallowed it. Bravo, Monsieur Grimaud, said Athos, and now take this. That's well. We dispense with your saying, Grace. Grimaud silently swallowed the glass of Bordeaux wine but his eyes, raised toward heaven during this delicious occupation, spoke a language which, though mute, was not the less expressive. "'And now,' said Athos, "'unless Monsieur Cardinal should form the ingenious idea of ripping up Grimaud, I think we may be pretty much at our ease respecting the letter.' Meantime his eminence continued his melancholy ride, murmuring between his moustaches, these four men must positively be mine. End of chapter. Chapter fifty two of the Three Musketeers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 52 Captivity, the First Day Let us return to Milady, whom a glance thrown upon the coast of France has made us lose sight of for an instant. We shall find her still in the despairing attitude in which we left her, plunged in an abyss of dismal reflection, a dark hell at the gate of which she has almost left hope behind, because for the first time she doubts, for the first time she fears. On two occasions her fortune has failed her, on two occasions she has found herself discovered and betrayed, and on these two occasions it was to one fatal genius, 
sent doubtlessly by the lord to combat her, that she has succumbed. D'Artagnan has conquered her, her, that invincible power of evil. He has deceived her in her love, humbled her in her pride, thwarted her in her ambition, and now he ruins her fortune, deprives her of liberty, and even threatens her life. Still more, he has lifted the corner of her mask, that shield with which she covered herself and which rendered her so strong. D'Artagnan has turned aside from Buckingham, whom she hates, as she hates every one she has loved, the tempest with which Richelieu threatened him in the person of the Queen. D'Artagnan had passed himself upon her as de Wardes, for whom she had conceived one of those tiger-like fancies common to women of her character. D'Artagnan knows that terrible secret which he has sworn no one shall know without dying. In short, at the moment in which he has just obtained from Richelieu a carte blanche, by the means of which he is about to take vengeance on her enemy, this precious paper is torn from her hands, and it is D'Artagnan who holds her prisoner, and is about to send her to some filthy botany bay, some infamous Tyburn of the Indian Ocean. All this she owes to D'Artagnan without doubt. From whom can come so many disgraces heaped upon her head, if not from him? He alone could have transmitted to Lord de Winter all these frightful secrets which he has discovered, one after another, by a train of fatalities. He knows her brother-in-law. He must have written to him. What hatred she distills! Motionless, with her burning and fixed glances, in her solitary apartment, how well the outbursts of passion which at times escape from the depths of her chest with her respiration accompany the sound of the surf which rises, growls, roars, and breaks itself like an eternal and powerless despair against the rocks on which is built this dark and lofty castle. How many magnificent projects of vengeance she conceives by the light of the flashes which her tempestuous passion casts over her mind against Madame Bonacieux, against Buckingham, but above all, against D'Artagnan, projects lost in the distance of the future. Yes, but in order to avenge herself she must be free, and to be free a prisoner has to pierce a wall, detach bars, cut through a floor, all undertakings which a patient and strong man may accomplish, but before which the feverish irritations of a woman must give way. Besides, to do all this, time is necessary, months, years, and she has ten or twelve days, as Lord de Winter, her fraternal and terrible jailer, has told her. And yet, if she were a man, she would attempt all this, and perhaps might succeed. Why, then, did heaven make the mistake of placing that man-like soul in that frail and delicate body? The first moments of her captivity were terrible. A few convulsions of rage which she could not suppress paid her debt of feminine weakness to nature. But by degrees she overcame the outbursts of her mad passion, and nervous tremblings which agitated her frame disappeared and she remained folded within herself like a fatigued serpent in repose. "'Go to! Go to! I must have been mad to allow myself to be carried away so,' says she, gazing into the glass, which reflects back to her eyes the burning glance by which she appears to interrogate herself. "'No violence! 
violence is the proof of weakness in the first place i have never succeeded by that means perhaps if i employed my strength against women i might perchance find them weaker than myself and consequently conquer them but it is with men that i struggle and i am but a woman to them let me fight like a woman then my strength is in my weakness then as if to render an account to herself of the changes she could place upon her countenance so mobile and so expressive she made it take all expressions from that of passionate anger which convulsed her features to that of the most sweet most affectionate and most seducing smile then her hair assumed successively under her skilful hands all the undulations she thought might assist the charms of her face at length she murmured satisfied with herself come nothing is lost i am still beautiful it was then nearly eight o'clock in the evening milady perceived a bed she calculated that the repose of a few hours would not only refresh her head and her ideas but still further her complexion a better idea however came into her mind before going to bed she had heard something said about supper she had already been an hour in this apartment they could not long delay bringing her a repast the prisoner did not wish to lose time and she resolved to make that very evening some attempts to ascertain the nature of the ground she had to work upon by studying the characters of the men to whose guardianship she was committed a light appeared under the door this light announced the reappearance of her jailers milady who had arisen threw herself quickly into the armchair her head thrown back her beautiful hair unbound and dishevelled her bosom half bare beneath her crumpled lace one hand on her heart and the other hanging down the bolts were drawn the door groaned upon its hinges steps sounded in the chamber and drew near place that table there said a voice which the prisoner recognized as that of felton the order was executed you will bring lights and relieve the sentinel continued felton and this double order which the young lieutenant gave to the same individuals proved to milady that her servants were the same men as her guards that is to say soldiers felton's orders were for the rest executed with a silent rapidity that gave a good idea of the way in which he maintained discipline at length felton who had not yet looked at milady turned toward her ah ah said he she is asleep that's well when she wakes she can sup and he made some steps toward the door but my lieutenant said a soldier less stoical than his chief and who had approached milady this lady is not asleep what not asleep said felton what is she doing then her face is very pale and i have listened in vain i do not hear her breathe you are right said felton after having looked at milady from the spot on which he stood without moving a step toward her go and tell lord de winter that his prisoner has fainted for this event not having been foreseen i don't know what to do the soldier went out to obey the orders of his officer felton sat down upon an armchair which happened to be near the door and waited without speaking a word without making a gesture milady possessed that great art so much studied by women of looking through her long eyelashes without appearing to open the lids she perceived felton 
who sat with his back toward her. She continued to look at him for nearly ten minutes, and in these ten minutes the immovable guardian never turned round once. She then thought that Lord de Winter would come, and by his presence give fresh strength to her jailer. Her first trial was lost. She acted like a woman who reckons up her resources. As a result she raised her head, opened her eyes, and sighed deeply. At this sigh Felton turned round. "'Ah, you are awake, madam,' he said. "'Then I have nothing more to do here. If you want anything, you can ring.' "'Oh, my God, my God, how I have suffered!' said Milady in that harmonious voice which, like that of the ancient enchantresses, charmed all whom she wished to destroy." and she assumed, upon sitting up in the armchair, a still more graceful and abandoned position than when she reclined. Felton arose. "'You will be served, madam, three times a day,' said he, "'in the morning at nine o'clock, in the day at one o'clock, and in the evening at eight. If that does not suit you, you can point out what other hours you prefer, and in this respect your wishes will be complied with.' but am I to remain always alone in this vast and dismal chamber? asked Milady. A woman of the neighborhood has been sent for, who will be tomorrow at the castle, and will return as often as you desire her presence. I thank you, sir, replied the prisoner humbly. Felton made a slight bow, and directed his steps toward the door. At the moment he was about to go out, Lord de Winter appeared in the corridor, followed by the soldier who had been sent to inform him of the swoon of Milady, He held a vial of salts in his hand. "'Well, what is it? What is going on here?' said he, in a jeering voice, on seeing the prisoner sitting up and Felton about to go out. "'Is this corpse come to life already? Felton, my lad, did you not perceive that you were taken for a novice?' and that the first act was being performed of a comedy of which we shall doubtless have the pleasure of following out all the developments. "'I thought so, my lord,' said Felton. "'But as the prisoner is a woman, after all, I wish to pay her the attention that every man of gentle birth owes to a woman, if not on her account, at least on my own.' Milady shuddered through her whole system. These words of Felton's passed like ice through her veins. "'So,' replied de Winter, laughing, "'that beautiful hair so skilfully dishevelled, that white skin and that languishing look, have not yet seduced you, you heart of stone?' "'No, my lord,' replied the impassive young man. "'Your lordship may be assured that it requires more than the tricks and coquetry of a woman to corrupt me. "'In that case, my brave lieutenant, let us leave Milady to find out something else.' and go to supper. But be easy. She has a fruitful imagination, and the second act of the comedy will not delay its steps after the first. And at these words Lord de Winter passed his arm through that of Felton, and led him out, laughing. "'Oh, I will be a match for you,' murmured Milady between her teeth. "'Be assured of that, you poor spoiled monk, you poor converted soldier.' who has cut his uniform out of a monk's frock? "'By the way,' resumed de Winter, stopping at the threshold of the door, "'you must not, milady, let this check take away your appetite. Taste that fowl and those fish.' 
on my honour they are not poisoned i have a very good cook and he is not to be my heir i have full and perfect confidence in him do as i do adieu dear sister till your next swoon this was all that milady could endure her hands clutched her armchair she ground her teeth inwardly her eyes followed the motion of the door as it closed behind lord de winter and felton and the moment she was alone a fresh fit of despair seized her she cast her eyes upon the table saw the glittering of a knife rushed toward it and clutched it but her disappointment was cruel the blade was round and of flexible silver a burst of laughter resounded from the other side of the ill-closed door and the door reopened ha 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 cried lord de winter ha ha don't you see my brave felton don't you see what i told you that knife was for you my lad she would have killed you observe this is one of her peculiarities to get rid thus after one fashion or another of all the people who bother her if i had listened to you the knife would have been pointed and of steel then no more of felton she would have cut your throat and after that everybody else's see john see how well she knows how to handle a knife in fact milady still held the harmless weapon in her clenched hand but these last words this supreme insult relaxed her hands her strength and even her will the knife fell to the ground you were right my lord said felton with a tone of profound disgust which sounded to the very bottom of the heart of milady you were right my lord and i was wrong and both again left the room but this time milady lent a more attentive ear than the first and she heard their steps die away in the distance of the corridor i am lost murmured she i am lost i am in the power of men upon whom i can have no more influence than upon statues of bronze or granite they know me by heart and are steeled against all my weapons it is however impossible that this should end as they have decreed in fact as this last reflection indicated this instinctive return to hope sentiments of weakness or fear did not dwell long in her ardent spirit milady sat down to table ate from several dishes drank a little spanish wine and felt all her resolution return before she went to bed she had pondered analyzed turned on all sides examined on all points the words the steps the gestures the signs and even the silence of her interlocutors and of this profound skilful and anxious study the result was that felton everything considered appeared the more vulnerable of her two persecutors one expression above all recurred to the mind of the prisoner if i had listened to you lord de winter had said to felton felton that had spoken in her favour since lord de winter had not been willing to listen to him weak or strong repeated milady that man has then a spark of pity in his soul of that spark i will make a flame that shall devour him as to the other he knows me he fears me and knows what he has to expect of me if ever i escape from his hands it is useless then to attempt anything with him but felton that's another thing he is a young ingenuous pure man who seems virtuous 
him there are means of destroying. Emma Lady went to bed and fell asleep with a smile upon her lips. Anyone who had seen her sleeping might have said she was a young girl dreaming of the crown of flowers she was to wear on her brow at the next festival. End of chapter Chapter 53 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 53 Captivity the Second Day Milady dreamed that she at length had D'Artagnan in her power, that she was present at his execution, and it was the sight of his odious blood flowing beneath the axe of the headsman which spread that charming smile upon her lips. She slept as a prisoner sleeps, rocked by his first hope. In the morning, when they entered her chamber, she was still in bed. Felton remained in the corridor. He brought with him the woman of whom he had spoken the evening before, and who had just arrived. This woman entered, and approaching Milady's bed, offered her services. Milady was habitually pale. Her complexion might therefore deceive a person who saw her for the first time. "'I am in a fever,' said she. "'I have not slept a single instant during all this long night. I suffer horribly. Are you likely to be more humane to me than others were yesterday?' All I ask is permission to remain abed. "'Would you like to have a physician called?' said the woman. Felton listened to this dialogue without speaking a word. Milady reflected that the more people she had around her, the more she would have to work upon, and Lord de Winter would redouble his watch. Besides, the physician might declare the ailment feigned, and Milady, after having lost the first trick, was not willing to lose the second. "'Go and fetch a physician,' said she. "'What could be the good of that? "'These gentlemen declared yesterday that my illness was a comedy. "'It would be just the same to-day, no doubt, "'for since yesterday evening they have had plenty of time to send for a doctor.' "'Then,' said Felton, who became impatient, "'say yourself, madam, what treatment you wish followed.' "'Eh! How can I tell? My God!' I know that I suffer, that's all. Give me anything you like, it is of little consequence. "'Go and fetch Lord de Winter,' said Felton, tired of these eternal complaints. "'Oh, no, no!' cried Milady. "'No, sir, do not call him, I conjure you. I am well, I want nothing, do not call him.' She gave so much vehemence, such magnetic eloquence to this exclamation, that Felton, in spite of himself, advanced some steps into the room. "'He has come,' thought Milady. "'Meanwhile, madam, if you really suffer,' said Felton, "'a physician shall be sent for, and if you deceive us, well, it will be the worse for you. But at least we shall not have to reproach ourselves with anything.' Milady made no reply, but turning her beautiful head round upon the pillow, she burst into tears and uttered heart-breaking sobs. Felton surveyed her for an instant with his usual impassiveness, 
Then, seeing that the crisis threatened to be prolonged, he went out. The woman followed him, and Lord de Winter did not appear. "'I fancy I begin to see my way,' murmured Milady with a savage joy, burying herself under the clothes to conceal from anybody who might be watching her this burst of inward satisfaction. Two hours passed away. "'Now it is time that the malady should be over,' said she. "'Let me rise and obtain some success this very day. I have but ten days, and this evening two of them will be gone.' In the morning, when they entered Milady's chamber, they had brought her breakfast. Now, she thought, they could not long delay coming to clear the table, and that Felton would then reappear. Milady was not deceived. Felton reappeared, and without observing whether Milady had or had not touched her repast, made a sign that the table should be carried out of the room, it having been brought in ready spread. Felton remained behind. He held a book in his hand. Milady, reclining in an armchair near the chimney, beautiful, pale, and resigned, looked like a holy virgin awaiting martyrdom. Felton approached her and said, "'Lord de Winter, who is a Catholic like yourself, madam, thinking that the deprivation of the rites and ceremonies of your church might be painful to you, has consented that you should read every day the ordinary of your Mass, and here is a book which contains the ritual.' At the manner in which Felton laid the book upon the little table near which Milady was sitting, at the tone in which he pronounced the two words, Your Mass, at the disdainful smile with which he accompanied them, Milady raised her head and looked more attentively at the officer. By that plain arrangement of the hair, by that costume of extreme simplicity, by the brow polished like marble and as hard and impenetrable, she recognized one of those gloomy Puritans she had so often met, not only in the court of King James, but in that of the King of France, where, in spite of the remembrance of the St. Bartholomew, they sometimes came to seek refuge. She then had one of those sudden inspirations which only people of genius receive in great crises, in supreme moments which are to decide their fortunes or their lives. Those two words— your mass, and a simple glance cast upon Felton, revealed to her all the importance of the reply she was about to make, but with that rapidity of intelligence which was peculiar to her, this reply, already arranged, presented itself to her lips. "'I,' said she, with an accent of disdain in unison with that which she had remarked in the voice of the young officer, "'I, sir, my mass!' Lord de Winter, the corrupted Catholic, knows very well that I am not of his religion, and this is a snare he wishes to lay for me. "'And of what religion are you, then, madam?' asked Felton, with an astonishment which, in spite of the empire he held over himself, he could not entirely conceal. "'I will tell it,' cried Milady, with a feigned exultation, "'on the day when I shall have suffered sufficiently for my faith.' The look of Felton revealed to Milady the full extent of the space she had opened for herself by this single word. The young officer, however, remained mute and motionless. His look alone had spoken. "'I am in the hands of my enemies,' continued she, with that tone of enthusiasm which she knew was familiar to the Puritans. "'Well, let my God save me, 
or let me perish for my God. That is the reply I beg you to make to Lord de Winter. And as to this book, added she, pointing to the manual with her finger, but without touching it, as if she must be contaminated by it, you may carry it back and make use of it yourself, for doubtless you are doubly the accomplice of Lord de Winter, the accomplice in his persecutions, the accomplice in his heresies. Felton made no reply, took the book with the same appearance of repugnance which he had before manifested, and retired pensively. Lord de Winter came toward five o'clock in the evening. Milady had had time, during the whole day, to trace her plan of conduct. She received him like a woman who had already recovered all her advantages. "'It appears,' said the baron, seating himself in the armchair opposite to that occupied by Milady, and stretching out his legs carelessly upon the hearth, "'it appears we have made a little apostasy.' "'What do you mean, sir?' "'I mean to say that, since we last met, you have changed your religion. You have not by chance married a Protestant for the third husband, have you?' "'Explain yourself, my lord.' replied the prisoner with majesty, for though I hear your words, I declare I do not understand them. Then you have no religion at all. <laughs> I like that best, replied Lord de Winter, laughing. Certainly that is most in accord with your own principles, replied Milady frigidly. Oh, I confess it is all the same to me. Oh, you need not avow this religious indifference, my lord. Your debaucheries and crimes would vouch for it. What, you talk of debaucheries, Madame Massalina, Lady Macbeth? <laughs> Either I misunderstand you, or you are very shameless. You only speak thus because you are overheard, coolly replied Milady, and you wish to interest your jailers and your hangmen against me. "'My jailers and my hangmen! <laughs> Heyday, madam! You are taking a poetical tone, and the comedy of yesterday turns to a tragedy this evening. As to the rest, in eight days you will be where you ought to be, and my task will be completed.' "'Infamous task! Impious task!' cried Milady, with the exultation of a victim who provokes his judge. "'My word!' said de winter rising i think the hussy is going mad come come calm yourself madam puritan or i'll remove you to a dungeon it's my spanish wine that has got into your head is it not but never mind that sort of intoxication is not dangerous and will have no bad effects and lord de winter retired swearing which at that period was a very knightly habit Felton was indeed behind the door, and had not lost one word of this scene. Milady had guessed aright. "'Yes, go, go,' said she to her brother. "'The effects are drawing near, on the contrary. But you, weak fool, will not see them until it is too late to shun them.' Silence was re-established. Two hours passed away. Milady's supper was brought in and she was found deeply engaged in saying her prayers aloud, prayers which she had learned of an old servant of her second husband, a most austere Puritan. She appeared to be in ecstasy, 
and did not pay the least attention to what was going on around her. Felton made a sign that she should not be disturbed, and when all was arranged, he went out quietly with the soldiers. Milady knew she might be watched, so she continued her prayers to the end, and it appeared to her that the soldier who was on duty at her door did not march with the same step and seemed to listen. For the moment she wished nothing better. She arose, came to the table, ate but little, and drank only water. An hour after, her table was cleared, but Milady remarked that this time Felton did not accompany the soldiers. He feared, then, to see her too often. She turned toward the wall to smile, for there was in this smile such an expression of triumph that this smile alone would have betrayed her. She allowed, therefore, half an hour to pass away, and, as at that moment all was silence in the old castle, as nothing was heard but the eternal murmur of the waves, that immense breaking of the ocean, with her pure, harmonious, and powerful voice she began the first couplet of the psalm, then in great favour with the Puritans. Thou leavest thy servants, Lord, to see if they be strong, but soon thou dost afford thy hand to lead them on. These verses were not excellent, <laughs> very far from it, but as it is well known, the Puritans did not pique themselves upon their poetry. While singing, Milady listened. The soldier on guard at her door stopped, as if he had been changed into stone. Milady was then able to judge of the effect she had produced. Then she continued her singing with inexpressible fervor and feeling. It appeared to her that the sound spread to a distance beneath the vaulted roofs, and carried with them a magic charm to soften the hearts of her jailers. It, however, likewise appeared that the soldier on duty, a zealous Catholic, no doubt, shook off the charm, for through the door he called, "'Hold your tongue, madam! Your song is as dismal as a de profundis, and if, besides the pleasure of being in garrison here, we must hear such things as these, no mortal can hold out.' "'Silence!' then exclaimed another stern voice which Milady recognized as that of Felton. "'What are you meddling with, stupid? Did anybody order you to prevent that woman from singing? No! You were told to guard her, to fire at her if she attempted to fly. Guard her! If she flies, kill her! But don't exceed your orders!' An expression of unspeakable joy lightened the countenance of Milady but this expression was fleeting as the reflection of lightning. Without appearing to have heard the dialogue, of which she had not lost a word, she began again, giving to her voice all the charm, all the power, all the seduction the demon had bestowed upon it. For all my tears, my cares, my exile and my chains, I have my youth, my prayers, and God who counts my pains. Her voice of immense power and sublime expression gave to the rude, unpolished poetry of these psalms a magic and an effect which the most exalted Puritans rarely found in the songs of their brethren, 
and which they were forced to ornament with all the resources of their imagination. Felton believed he heard the singing of the angel who consoled the three Hebrews in the furnace. The lady continued, One day our doors will ope, with God come our desire, and if betrays that hope, to death we can aspire. This verse, into which the terrible enchantress threw her whole soul, completed the trouble which had seized the heart of the young officer. He opened the door quickly, and Milady saw him appear, pale as usual, but with his eye inflamed and almost wild. "'Why do you sing thus, and with such a voice?' said he. "'Your pardon, sir,' said Milady, with mildness. "'I forgot that my songs are out of place in this castle.' I have perhaps offended you in your creed, but it was without wishing to do so, I swear. Pardon me, then, a fault which is perhaps great, but which certainly was involuntary. Milady was so beautiful at this moment. The religious ecstasy in which she appeared to be plunged gave such an expression to her countenance, that Felton was so dazzled that he fancied he beheld the angel whom he had only just before heard. "'Yes, yes,' said he. "'You disturb. You agitate the people who live in the castle.' The poor, senseless young man was not aware of the incoherence of his words, while Milady was reading with her lynx's eyes the very depths of his heart. "'I will be silent, then,' said Milady, casting down her eyes with all the sweetness she could give to her voice, with all the resignation she could impress upon her manner. "'No, no, madam,' said Felton. "'Only do not sing so loud, particularly at night.' And at these words Felton, feeling that he could not long maintain his severity toward his prisoner, rushed out of the room. "'You have done right, lieutenant,' said the soldier. "'Such songs disturb the mind, and yet we become accustomed to them. Her voice is so beautiful.'" End of chapter Chapter Fifty Four of the Three Musketeers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Chapter Fifty Four Captivity, the Third Day. Felton had fallen, but there was still another step to be taken. He must be retained, or rather he must be left quite alone, and Milady but obscurely perceived the means which could lead to this result. Still more must be done. He must be made to speak, in order that he might be spoken to, for Milady very well knew that her greatest seduction was in her voice, which so skilfully ran over the whole gamut of tones from human speech to language celestial. Yet in spite of all this seduction Milady might fail, for Felton was forewarned, and that against the least chance. From that moment she watched all his actions, all his words, from the simplest glance of his eyes to his gestures, 
even to a breath which could be interpreted as a sigh. In short, she studied everything, as a skilful comedian does to whom a new part has been assigned in a line to which he is not accustomed. Face to face with Lord de Winter, her plan of conduct was more easy. She had laid that down the preceding evening. To remain silent and dignified in his presence, from time to time to irritate him by affected disdain, by a contemptuous word, to provoke him to threats and violence which would produce a contrast with her own resignation. Such was her plan. Felton would see all. Perhaps he would say nothing, but he would see. In the morning Felton came as usual, but Milady allowed him to preside over all the preparations for breakfast without addressing a word to him. At the moment when he was about to retire, she was cheered with a ray of hope, for she thought he was about to speak, but his lips moved without any sound leaving his mouth, and making a powerful effort to control himself, he sent back to his heart the words that were about to escape from his lips, and went out. Toward midday Lord de Winter entered. It was a tolerably fine winter's day, and a ray of that pale English sun which lights but does not warm came through the bars of her prison. Milady was looking out at the window, and pretended not to hear the door as it opened. "'Ah, ah!' said Lord de Winter. "'After having played comedy, after having played tragedy, we are now playing melancholy?' The prisoner made no reply. "'Yes, yes!' continued Lord de Winter. I understand. You would like very well to be at liberty on that beach. You would like very well to be in a good ship dancing upon the waves of that emerald green sea. You would like very well, either on land or on the ocean, to lay for me one of those nice little ambuscades you are so skilful in planning. Patience, patience. In four days' time the shore will be beneath your feet— the sea will be open to you, more open than will perhaps be agreeable to you, for in four days England will be relieved of you. Milady folded her hands, and raising her fine eyes toward heaven, Lord, Lord, said she, with an angelic meekness of gesture and tone, pardon this man, as I myself pardon him. Yes, pray, accursed woman, cried the baron. Your prayer is so much the more generous from your being, I swear to you, in the power of a man who will never pardon you. And he went out. At the moment he went out, a piercing glance darted through the opening of the nearly closed door, and she perceived Felton, who drew quickly to one side to prevent being seen by her. Then she threw herself upon her knees and began to pray. My God, my God, said she. Thou knowest in what holy cause I suffer. Give me, then, strength to suffer. The door opened gently. The beautiful supplicant pretended not to hear the noise, and in a voice broken by tears she continued, God of vengeance, God of goodness, wilt thou allow the frightful projects of this man to be accomplished? Then only she pretended to hear the sound of Felton's steps, and rising quick as thought, she blushed, as if ashamed of being surprised on her knees. "'I do not like to disturb those who pray, madam,' said Felton seriously. 
Do not disturb yourself on my account, I beseech you. How do you know I was praying, sir? said my lady in a voice broken by sobs. You were deceived, sir. I was not praying. Do you think then, madam, replied Felton in the same serious voice, but with a milder tone, do you think I assume the right of preventing a creature from prostrating herself before her creator? God forbid! Besides, repentance becomes the guilty, whatever crimes they may have committed. For me the guilty are sacred at the feet of God. Guilty? I? said Milady, with a smile which might have disarmed the angel of the last judgment. Guilty? Oh, my God! Thou knowest whether I am guilty. Say I am condemned, sir, if you please. But you know that God, who loves martyrs, sometimes permits the innocent to be condemned. Were you condemned? Were you innocent? Were you a martyr? replied Felton. The greater would be the necessity for prayer, and I myself would aid you with my prayers. Oh, you are a just man, cried Milady, throwing herself at his feet. I can hold out no longer, for I fear I shall be wanting in strength at the moment when I shall be forced to undergo the struggle and confess my faith. Listen, then, to the supplication of a despairing woman. You are abused, sir, but that is not the question. I only ask you one favour, and if you grant it me, I will bless you in this world and in the next. Speak to the master, madam, said Felton. Happily I am neither charged with the power of pardoning nor punishing. It is upon one higher place than I am that God has laid this responsibility. To you, no, to you alone, listen to me. Rather than add to my destruction, rather than add to my ignominy. If you have merited this shame, madam, if you have incurred this ignominy, you must submit it as an offering to God. What do you say? Oh, you do not understand me. When I speak of ignominy, you think I speak of some chastisement, of imprisonment or death. Would to heaven! Of what consequence to me is imprisonment or death? It is I who no longer understand you, madam, said Felton. Or rather, who pretend not to understand me, sir, replied the prisoner with a smile of incredulity. No, madam, on the honour of a soldier, on the faith of a Christian. What? You are ignorant of Lord de Winter's designs upon me? I am. Impossible! You are his confidant. I never lie, madam. Oh, he conceals them too little for you not to divine them. I seek to divine nothing, madam. I wait till I am confided in, and apart from that which Lord de Winter has said to me before you, he has confided nothing to me. Why, then, cried Milady, with an incredible tone of truthfulness, you are not his accomplice. You do not know that he destines me to a disgrace which all the punishments of the world cannot equal in horror? You are deceived, madam, said Felton, blushing. Lord de Winter is not capable of such a crime. Good, said Milady to herself. Without thinking what it is, he calls it a crime. Then aloud, the friend of that wretch is capable of everything. 
"'Whom do you call that wretch?' asked Felton. "'Are there, then, in England two men to whom such an epithet can be applied?' "'You mean George Villiers?' asked Felton, whose looks became excited. "'Whom pagans and unbelieving Gentiles call Duke of Buckingham,' replied Milady. "'I could not have thought that there was an Englishman in all England who would have required so long an explanation to make him understand of whom I am speaking.' "'The hand of the Lord is stretched over him,' said Felton. "'He will not escape the chastisement he deserves.' Felton only expressed, with regard to the Duke, the feeling of execration which all the English had declared toward him whom the Catholics themselves called the extortioner, the pillager, the debauchee, and whom the Puritans styled simply Satan. "'Oh, my God! my God!' cried Milady. When I supplicate thee to pour upon this man the chastisement which is his due, thou knowest it is not my own vengeance I pursue, but the deliverance of a whole nation that I implore. Do you know him, then? asked Felton. At length he interrogates me, said Milady to herself, at the height of joy at having obtained so quickly such a great result. Oh, know him! Yes! yes to my misfortune to my eternal misfortune and milady twisted her arms as if in a paroxysm of grief felton no doubt felt within himself that his strength was abandoning him and he made several steps toward the door but the prisoner whose eye never left him sprang in pursuit of him and stopped him sir cried she be kind be clement listen to my prayer that knife which the fatal prudence of the baron deprived me of, because he knows the use I would make of it. Oh, hear me to the end! That knife, give it to me for a minute only, for mercy's, for pity's sake. I will embrace your knees. You shall shut the door, that you may be certain I contemplate no injury to you. My God, to you, the only just, good, and compassionate being I have met with. To you, my preserver, perhaps. One minute, that knife, one minute, a single minute, and I will restore it to you through the grating of the door. Only one minute, Mr. Felton, and you will have saved my honour. To kill yourself? cried Felton, with terror, forgetting to withdraw his hands from the hands of the prisoner. To kill yourself? I have told, sir, murmured Milady, lowering her voice and allowing herself to sink overpowered to the ground. I have told my secret. He knows all. My God, I am lost. Felton remained standing, motionless and undecided. He still doubts, thought Milady. I have not been earnest enough. Someone was heard in the corridor. Milady recognized the step of Lord de Winter. Felton recognized it also, and made a step toward the door. Milady sprang toward him. "'Oh, not a word,' said she, in a concentrated voice. "'Not a word of all that I have said to you to this man, or I am lost, and it would be you, you.' Then, as the steps drew near, she became silent for fear of being heard, applying, with a gesture of infinite terror, her beautiful hand to Felton's mouth. Felton gently repulsed Milady, and she sank into a chair. Lord de Winter passed before the door without stopping, 
and they heard the noise of his footsteps soon die away. Felton, as pale as death, remained some instants with his ear bent and listening. Then, when the sound was quite extinct, he breathed like a man awaking from a dream, and rushed out of the apartment. Ah! said Milady, listening in her turn to the noise of Felton's steps, which withdrew in a direction opposite to those of Lord de Winter, at length you are mine. Then her brow darkened. If he tells the baron, said she, I am lost, for the baron, who knows very well that I shall not kill myself, will place me before him with a knife in my hand, and he will discover that all this despair is but acted. She placed herself before the glass, and regarded herself attentively. Never had she appeared more beautiful. "'Oh, yes,' said she, smiling, "'but we won't tell him.' In the evening Lord de Winter accompanied the supper. "'Sir,' said Milady, "'is your presence an indispensable accessory of my captivity? Could you not spare me the increase of torture which your visits cause me?' "'How, dear sister,' said Lord de Winter, "'did you not sentimentally inform me with that pretty mouth of yours, so cruel to me to-day, that you came to England solely for the pleasure of seeing me at your ease, an enjoyment of which you told me so sensibly, felt the deprivation that you had risked everything for it? Sea-sickness, tempest, captivity? Well, here I am, be satisfied.' Besides, this time, my visit has a motive. Milady trembled. She thought Felton had told all. Perhaps never in her life had this woman, who had experienced so many opposite and powerful emotions, felt her heart beat so violently. She was seated. Lord de Winter took a chair, drew it toward her, and sat down close beside her. Then, taking a paper out of his pocket, he unfolded it slowly. Here said he, I want to show you the kind of passport which I have drawn up, and which will serve you henceforward as the rule of order in the life I consent to leave you. Then turning his eyes from Milady to the paper, he read, Order to conduct, the name is blank, interrupted Lord de Winter. If you have any preference, you can point it out to me, and if it be not within a thousand leagues of London, attention will be paid to your wishes. I will begin again, then. Order to conduct to the person named Charlotte Baxon, branded by the justice of the Kingdom of France, but liberated after chastisement. She is to dwell in this place without ever going more than three leagues from it. In case of any attempt to escape, the penalty of death is to be applied." She will receive five shillings per day for lodging and food. That order does not concern me, replied Milady coldly, since it bears another name than mine. A name? Have you a name, then? I bear that of your brother. Ay, but you are mistaken. My brother is only your second husband, and your first is still living. Tell me his name, and I will put it in the place of the name of Charlotte Baxon. No, you will not. You are silent. Well, then you must be registered as Charlotte Baxon. Milady remained silent, only this time it was no longer from affectation, but from terror. She believed the order ready for execution. 
she thought that Lord de Winter had hastened her departure, she thought she was condemned to set off that very evening. Everything in her mind was lost for an instant, when all at once she perceived that no signature was attached to the order. The joy she felt at this discovery was so great she could not conceal it. "'Yes, yes,' said Lord de Winter, who perceived what was passing in her mind. "'Yes, you look for the signature, and you say to yourself, "'All is not lost, for that order is not signed. "'It is only shown to me to terrify me, that's all.' <laughs> "'You are mistaken. "'Tomorrow this order will be sent to the Duke of Buckingham. "'The day after tomorrow it will return signed by his hand "'and marked with his seal, "'and four-and-twenty hours afterward "'I will answer for its being carried into execution. "'Adieu, madam. "'That is all I had to say to you.' "'And I reply to you, sir, "'that this abuse of power, "'this exile under a fictitious name, "'are infamous.' "'Would you like better to be hanged in your true name, milady? "'You know that the English laws are inexorable on the abuse of marriage. "'Speak freely. "'Although my name, or rather that of my brother, "'would be mixed up with the affair, "'I will risk the scandal of a public trial "'to make myself certain of getting rid of you.' "'Milady made no reply, but became as pale as a corpse. "'Oh, I see you prefer peregrination.' That's well, madam, and there is an old proverb that says, Travelling trains youth. My faith, you are not wrong after all, and life is sweet. That's the reason why I take such care you shall not deprive me of mine. There only remains, then, the question of the five shillings to be settled. You think me rather parsimonious, don't you? That's because I don't care to leave you the means of corrupting your jailers. Besides, you will always have your charms left to seduce them with. Employ them, if your check with regard to Felton has not disgusted you with attempts of that kind. Felton has not told him, said Milady to herself. Nothing is lost, then. And now, madam, till I see you again. Tomorrow I will come and announce to you the departure of my messenger. Lord de Winter rose, saluted her ironically, and went out. Milady breathed again. She had still four days before her. Four days would quite suffice to complete the seduction of Felton. A terrible idea, however, rushed into her mind. She thought that Lord de Winter would perhaps send Felton himself to get the order signed by the Duke of Buckingham. In that case Felton would escape her, for in order to secure success the magic of a continuous seduction was necessary. Nevertheless, as we have said, one circumstance reassured her. Felton had not spoken. As she would not appear to be agitated by the threats of Lord de Winter, she placed herself at the table and ate. Then, as she had done the evening before, she fell on her knees and repeated her prayers aloud. As on the evening before, the soldier stopped his march to listen to her. Soon after, she heard lighter steps than those of the sentinel, which came from the end of the corridor and stopped before her door. "'It is he,' said she, and she began the same religious chant which had so strongly excited Felton the evening before. But although her voice, sweet, full, and sonorous, vibrated as harmoniously and as affectingly as ever, the door remained shut. 
It appeared, however, to Milady that in one of the furtive glances she darted from time to time at the grating of the door, she thought she saw the ardent eyes of the young man through the narrow opening. And whether this was reality or vision, he had this time sufficient self-command not to enter. However, a few instants after she had finished her religious song, Milady thought she heard a profound sigh. Then the same step she had heard approach slowly withdrew, as if with regret. End of chapter Chapter 55 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 55 Captivity, the Fourth Day The next day, when Felton entered Milady's apartment, he found her standing, mounted upon a chair, holding in her hands a cord made by means of torn cambric handkerchiefs, twisted into a kind of rope one with another, and tied at the ends. At the noise Felton made in entering, Milady leaped lightly to the ground, and tried to conceal behind her the improvised cord she held in her hand. The young man was more pale than usual, and his eyes, reddened by want of sleep, denoted that he had passed a feverish night. Nevertheless, his brow was armed with a severity more austere than ever. He advanced slowly toward Milady, who had seated herself, and taking an end of the murderous rope which, by neglect, or perhaps by design, she allowed to be seen. "'What is this, madam?' he asked coldly. "'That? Nothing?' said Milady, smiling with that painful expression which she knew so well how to give to her smile. Ennui is the mortal enemy of prisoners. I had ennui, and I amused myself with twisting that rope. Felton turned his eyes toward the part of the wall of the apartment before which he had found Milady standing in the armchair in which he was now seated, and over her head he perceived a gilt-headed screw, fixed in the wall for the purpose of hanging up clothes or weapons. He started, and the prisoner saw that start for though her eyes were cast down, nothing escaped her. "'What were you doing on that armchair?' asked he. "'Of what consequence?' replied Milady. "'But,' replied Felton, "'I wish to know.' "'Do not question me,' said the prisoner. "'You know that we who are true Christians are forbidden to lie.' "'Well, then,' said Felton, "'I will tell you what you were doing, or rather what you meant to do.' You are going to complete the fatal project you cherish in your mind. Remember, madam, if our God forbids falsehood, he much more severely condemns suicide. When God sees one of his creatures persecuted unjustly, placed between suicide and dishonor, believe me, sir, replied Milady in a tone of deep conviction, God pardons suicide, for then suicide becomes martyrdom. "'You say either too much or too little. Speak, madam. In the name of heaven, explain yourself.' "'That I may relate my misfortunes for you to treat them as fables. That I may tell you my projects for you to go and betray them to my persecutor? <laughs> no, sir. 
Besides, of what importance to you is the life or death of a condemned wretch? You are only responsible for my body, is it not so? And provided you provide a carcass that may be recognized as mine, they will require no more of you. Nay, perhaps you will even have a double reward. I, madam, I, cried Felton, you suppose that I would ever accept the price of your life? Oh, you cannot believe what you say. Let me act as I please, Felton, let me act as I please, said Milady, elated. Every soldier must be ambitious, must he not? You are a lieutenant? Well, you will follow me to the grave with the rank of captain. What have I then done to you? said Felton, much agitated, that you should load me with such a responsibility before God and before men. In a few days you will be away from this place. Your life, madam, will then no longer be under my care, and, added he with a sigh, then you can do what you will with it. So, cried Milady, as if she could not resist giving utterance to a holy indignation, you, a pious man, you who are called a just man, you ask but one thing, and that is yet you may not be inculpated, annoyed, by my death. It is my duty to watch over your life, madam, and I will watch. But do you understand the mission you are fulfilling? Cruel enough, if I am guilty, but what name can you give it, what name will the Lord give it, if I am innocent? I am a soldier, madam and fulfill the orders I have received. Do you believe, then, that at the day of the last judgment God will separate blind executioners from iniquitous judges? You are not willing that I should kill my body, and you make yourself the agent of him who would kill my soul. But I repeat it again to you, replied Felton, in great emotion, no danger threatens you. I will answer for Lord de Winter as for myself." Dunce! cried Milady. Dunce! Who dares to answer for another man, when the wisest, when those most after God's own heart, hesitate to answer for themselves, and who ranges himself on the side of the strongest and the most fortunate, to crush the weakest and the most unfortunate? Impossible, madam, impossible, murmured Felton, who felt to the bottom of his heart the justness of this argument. A prisoner, you will not recover your liberty through me. Living, you will not lose your life through me. Yes, cried Milady, but I shall lose that which is much dearer to me than life. I shall lose my honor, Felton. And it is you, you whom I make responsible, before God and before men, for my shame and my infamy. This time Felton, immovable as he was, or appeared to be, could not resist the secret influence which had already taken possession of him. To see this woman, so beautiful, fair as the brightest vision, to see her by turns overcome with grief and threatening, to resist at once the ascendancy of grief and beauty, it was too much for a visionary, it was too much for a brain weakened by the ardent dreams of an ecstatic faith, it was too much for a heart furrowed by the love of heaven that burns by the hatred of men that devours. Milady saw the trouble. She felt by intuition the flame of the opposing passions which burn with the blood in the veins of the young fanatic. 
as a skilful general, seeing the enemy ready to surrender, marches toward him with a cry of victory, she rose, beautiful as an antique priestess, inspired like a Christian virgin, her arms extended, her throat uncovered, her hair dishevelled, holding with one hand her robe modestly drawn over her breast, her look illumined by that fire which had already created such disorder in the veins of the young Puritan, and went toward him, crying out with a vehement air, and in her melodious voice, to which on this occasion she communicated a terrible energy, "'Let this victim to Baal be sent! To the lions the martyr be thrown! Thy God shall teach thee to repent! From the abyss he'll give ear to my moan!' Felton stood before this strange apparition like one petrified. "'Who art thou? Who art thou?' cried he, clasping his hands. "'Art thou a messenger from God? Art thou a messenger from hell? Art thou an angel or a demon? Callest thou thyself Eloa or Estarte?' "'Do you not know me, Felton? I am neither an angel nor a demon. I am a daughter of earth.' I am a sister of thy faith, that is all. Yes, yes, said Felton. I doubted, but now I believe. You believe, and still you are an accomplice of that child of Belial which is called Lord de Winter. You believe, and yet you leave me in the hands of mine enemies, of the enemy of England, of the enemy of God. You believe, and yet you deliver me up to him who fills and defiles the world with his heresies and debaucheries, to that infamous Sardanapalus, whom the blind call the Duke of Buckingham, and whom believers name Antichrist. I deliver you up to Buckingham? I? What mean you by that? They have eyes, cried Milady, but they see not. Ears have they, but they hear not. "'Yes, yes,' said Felton, passing his hands over his brow, covered with sweat, as if to remove his last doubt. "'Yes, I recognize the voice which speaks to me in my dreams. Yes, I recognize the features of the angel who appears to me every night, crying to my soul, which cannot sleep. Strike, save England, save thyself, for thou wilt die without having appeased God. Speak!' "'Speak!' cried Felton. "'I can understand you now.' A flash of terrible joy, but rapid as thought, gleamed from the eyes of Milady. However fugitive this homicidal flash, Felton saw it, and started as if its light had revealed the abysses of this woman's heart. He recalled, all at once, the warnings of Lord de Winter, the seductions of Milady, her first attempts after her arrival. He drew back a step, and hung down his head, without, however, ceasing to look at her, as if, fascinated by this strange creature, he could not detach his eyes from her eyes. Milady was not a woman to misunderstand the meaning of this hesitation. Under her apparent emotions her icy coolness never abandoned her. Before Felton replied, and before she should be forced to resume this conversation, so difficult to be sustained in the same exalted tone, she let her hands fall, and as if the weakness of the woman overpowered the enthusiasm of the inspired fanatic, she said, "'But no, 
It is not for me to be the Judith to deliver Bethulia from this holofairness. The sword of the Eternal is too heavy for my arm. Allow me, then, to avoid dishonour by death. Let me take refuge in martyrdom. I do not ask you for liberty, as a guilty one would, nor for vengeance, as would a pagan. Let me die, that is all. I supplicate you, I implore you on my knees, let me die, and my last sigh shall be a blessing for my preserver. Hearing that voice, so sweet and suppliant, seeing that look, so timid and downcast, Felton reproached himself. By degrees the enchantress had clothed herself with that magic adornment which she assumed and threw aside at will. That is to say, beauty, meekness, and tears, and above all the irresistible attraction of mystical voluptuousness, the most devouring of all voluptuousness. "'Alas!' said Felton, "'I can do but one thing, which is to pity you if you prove to me you are a victim. But Lord de Winter makes cruel accusations against you. You are a Christian. You are my sister in religion. I feel myself drawn toward you. I, who have never loved any one but my benefactor. I, who have met with nothing but traitors and impious men. But you, madam, so beautiful in reality, you, so pure in appearance, must have committed great iniquities for Lord de Winter to pursue you thus. They have eyes, repeated Milady with an accent of indescribable grief, but they see not. Ears have they, but they hear not. But, cried the young officer, speak then, speak. Confide my shame to you, cried Milady with the blush of modesty upon her countenance, for often the crime of one becomes the shame of another. Confide my shame to you, a man, and I a woman? Oh, continued she, placing her hand modestly over her beautiful eyes, never, never, I could not. To me? To a brother? said Felton. Milady looked at him for some time with an expression which the young man took for doubt, but which, however, was nothing but observation, or rather the wish to fascinate. Felton, in his turn a suppliant, clasped his hands. "'Well, then,' said Milady, "'I confide in my brother. I will dare to—' At this moment the steps of Lord de Winter were heard, but this time the terrible brother-in-law of Milady did not content himself, as on the preceding day, with passing before the door and going away again. He paused, exchanged two words with the sentinel, then the door opened and he appeared. From the exchange of these two words Felton drew back quickly, and when Lord de Winter entered, he was several paces from the prisoner. The baron entered slowly, sending a scrutinizing glance from Milady to the young officer. "'You have been here a very long time, John,' said he. "'Has this woman been relating her crimes to you?' In that case I can comprehend the length of the conversation." Felton started, and Milady felt she was lost if she did not come to the assistance of the disconcerted Puritan. "'Ah! you fear your prisoner should escape,' said she. 
well ask your worthy jailer what favour i this instant solicited of him you demanded a favour said the baron suspiciously yes my lord replied the young man confused and what favour pray asked lord de winter a knife which she would return to me through the grating of the door a minute after she had received it replied felton there is some one then concealed here whose throat this amiable lady is desirous of cutting said de winter in an ironical contemptuous tone there is myself replied milady i have given you the choice between america and tyburn replied lord de winter choose tyburn madam believe me the cord is more certain than the knife felton grew pale and made a step forward remembering that at the moment he entered milady had a rope in her hand you are right said she i have often thought of it then she added in a low voice and i will think of it again felton felt a shudder run to the marrow of his bones probably lord de winter perceived this emotion mistrust yourself john said he i have placed reliance upon you my friend beware i have warned you but be of good courage my lad in three days we shall be delivered from this creature and where i shall send her she can harm nobody you hear him cried milady with vehemence so that the baron might believe she was addressing heaven and that felton might understand she was addressing him felton lowered his head and reflected the baron took the young officer by the arm and turned his head over his shoulder so as not to lose sight of milady till he was gone out well said the prisoner when the door was shut i am not so far advanced as i believed de winter has changed his usual stupidity into a strange prudence it is the desire of vengeance and how desire moulds a man as to felton he hesitates ah he is not a man like that cursed d'artagnan a puritan only adores virgins and he adores them by clasping his hands a musketeer loves women and he loves them by clasping his arms around them milady waited then with much impatience for she feared the day would pass away without her seeing felton again at last in an hour after the scene we have just described she heard someone speaking in a low voice at the door presently the door opened and she perceived felton the young man advanced rapidly into the chamber leaving the door open behind him and making a sign to milady to be silent his face was much agitated what do you want with me said she listen said felton in a low voice i have just sent away the sentinel that i might remain here without anybody knowing it in order to speak to you without being overheard the baron has just related a frightful story to me milady assumed her smile of a resigned victim and shook her head either you are a demon continued felton or the baron my benefactor my father is a monster i have known you four days i have loved him four years i therefore may hesitate between you be not alarmed at what i say i want to be convinced to-night after twelve i will come and see you 
and you shall convince me. No, Felton, no, my brother, said she. The sacrifice is too great, and I feel what it must cost you. No, I am lost. Do not be lost with me. My death will be much more eloquent than my life, and the silence of the corpse will convince you much better than the words of the prisoner. "'Be silent, madam,' cried Felton, "'and do not speak to me thus. I came to entreat you to promise me, upon your honour, to swear to me by what you hold most sacred, that you will make no attempt upon your life.' "'I will not promise,' said Milady, "'for no one has more respect for a promise or an oath than I have, and if I make a promise I must keep it.' "'Well,' said Felton, only promise till you have seen me again. If when you have seen me again you still persist, well, then you shall be free, and I myself will give you the weapon you desire. Well, said Milady, for you, I will wait. Swear. I swear it, by our God. Are you satisfied? Well, said Felton, till to-night and he darted out of the room, shut the door, and waited in the corridor, the soldier's half-pike in his hand, and as if he had mounted guard in his place. The soldier returned, and Felton gave him back his weapon. Then through the grating to which she had drawn near, Milady saw the young man make a sign with delirious fervor, and depart in an apparent transport of joy. As for her, she returned to her place with a smile of savage contempt upon her lips, and repeated, blaspheming, that terrible name of God, by whom she had just sworn without ever having learned to know him. "'My God,' said she, "'what a senseless fanatic! My God, it is I, I, and this fellow who will help me to avenge myself!' End of chapter Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.